Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. Oh man, it's riding that beat. Feels good. Yeah. This is uh, your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and occasionally ourselves, because we're we're just good like that. Uh, a few brief words of warning. This program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. I am Camille Foster of Freethink. This is episode number 53, recorded on the evening of, what is today? It's April 13th, 2017. Um, and uh, this is the Fallout Shelter edition. Uh, mm. And uh, because it is the Fallout Shelter edition, I am delighted to be joined, um, as as per usual, by one Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and another gentleman by the name of Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight, where uh, they, they did a thing about syrup yesterday on his show that was mm. apparently quite good, very it was well good. received. It was good. Did, 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 did anyone see that? You should see that one. Yeah, um, that's that's and, what the that's what the people want to hear about. On well, this, I'll tell on you this what, week I, of I, on this week of weeks. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Like, the, I, <laughs> I talked to the correspondent um, uh, via text, uh, Gian Toboni. Toboni, actually, I would just call it Tobans. Uh, Gian Toboni had a great piece uh, before. I think about Somalia. I couldn't watch it because <laughs> it's like too depressing. Uh, she's amazing. No, I did watch it. It was really good, and it went into my um, a little trifle. About maple syrup, but uh, it's not it's not um, online yet, but it'll be online soon. Soon, I mean, you should just subscribe to HBO. It's about how the state of Canada controls the maple. You don't it own is. your own maple tree. You do not, and it's actually not the state that does it. It's a private organization that has the backing of the courts of Quebec, and it is now going to the Supreme Court of people who there's a cartel. A mafia, as one of the syrup producers told me, you when you, when the when the syrup comes out of its uh, out of the tree, you don't own it. You got you have to sell it to the to the federation. And these guys want to sell it on their own, and they want to sell it to other provinces. Is it called Simply. the Trade Federation? It it is literally it's hilarious because they call themselves the Rebels, and it's like a Star Wars movie. It's like the Rebels in the Federation, and um and yeah, no, you don't you don't technically uh, own it. Uh, and if you are producing and not selling to them, they can. Uh, raid your your sugar shacks is what it's called. They can put up cameras. They they posted guards to one guy who we visited uh, last year who was there and billed him for it. Now I should uh, I, I want to so correct. It's good. I want to correct something here. Yeah. Uh, the Federation is not Star Wars. That is Star Trek. Whatever. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's no. important. There uh, are yeah. there are people who listen to this podcast who expect facts. Yeah, real news, not fake yeah. news. But us. there's also some so. people who wouldn't mind if their sugar shacks got raided. Yeah, if you don't yeah, you know what I'm saying. And I'll tell you <laughs> yeah. what. Yeah, and there Cat, were other of us, others of us in high school who had girlfriends, <laughs> and don't know the difference, uh, Camille, because we were out with women. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Come on, Ron Paul. <laughs> That's something from before. We'll get we'll get into mm, that in a second. Mm. That's that was something. Why some, you look so grumpy about this right now? Do well, I, because he's thinking about when is Moynihan going to introduce Black Ron Paul, like we were doing <laughs> this before the show. This we're like, we're gonna, nonsense. Yeah. We're going to do this at minute yeah. sixty, minute seventy, minute yeah. eighty. But Camille's got that look in his face, like, oh no, Moynihan's going to do it. Black Ron Paul, it's coming. <laughs> no, so I'm I'm actually the reason I'm making I'm making a face is because we have our um our new our newest addition to the uh, fifth column team family 
um, not not Chad, who is over there doing some Make America Great He's Again. He's usually eating chicken when I turn around. But Dan, Dan Trump Deere. branded chicken. <laughs> turn around. How many times have I turned around and Chad's eating chicken? Yeah. It's like, what is he doing? <laughs> Can I finish? Dan Beer, who is the newest addition to our family, I, who I, is joining. I, don't. Can I just finish? God, He's I so grumpy. I'm just, I'm just thanking him. In advance, because I'm going to forget to credit him later, but Dan is uh, helping with the show and doing all sorts of remarkable things and research and, and helping with various things. He's a very smart, uh, accomplished, young, uh, thoughtful person uh, who is wrong about various things. And I'm, I'm, I've hired him so that we can try to uh, try to straighten him out. He's not allowed to talk on the show. So there we go. Um, at any rate, he tells me I'm wrong about the Federation and something, something. I, I'm not a real is he uh, sort of space in, geek or in nerd. real time. Yeah, he is. And that's oh, okay. Oh, that's great. But I'll tell you what there isn't. I'll tell you what there isn't. There's no like halftime report or anything or post game. Yeah. So there won't actually be an adjudication. Well, we can take, we can take that now. We, we don't need to do that. No, we should get, but we, we could should, do that. We should hire Levy. But uh, at any rate, um, there are all manner of crazy things happening in the universe this week. Uh, I mentioned that this is the uh, Fallout Shelter edition because, uh, as we all know, during the last show, there was a barrage of Tomahawk missiles fired at Syria. Um, and since that time, we have been reeling from those events. It is still sorting itself out. The United States is not happy with Russia. Russia is not happy with the United States. China was here and now they're gone. And then we dropped a massive bomb on Afghanistan. We are apparently ratcheting up all of our military engagements in the Middle East. And uh, apparently there was a carrier group headed towards North Korea for not the first time in the last couple of years. But at any rate, everything is more exciting when Donald Trump does it. Those things are important and interesting. But the most important things right now that we are facing Mm. are two. Sean Spicer Mm. and some asshole who tried to get on a flight in United Airlines. Um, or at least he got on that flight and was seated and then was drug off that flight. Um, I don't know which one of these important issues you gentlemen want to tackle first, <laughs> but I it think, seems to me that before we talk about any of yeah. these foreign policy matters, we should get this out yeah. of the way. I think Moynihan <laughs> has a unified theory, but first, I before do. he gets so to his you'd start. unified theory of this, Camille, so I've been trying to think, who would you be in that in that scenario, because the United, in, which, in which scenario the, the, the one with the Holocaust be, centers you, you, or the, way, the airports? No, 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 the United Airlines. You okay. sound like Black Heather McDonald now. You're like that man. Get him off the plane. <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah, kind so, of. So, <laughs> are, are you Camille Doctor Dow? Are hmm. you like sitting there? Um, stoically being pulled away, and I say stoic because he's Asian. Mm. Um, being pulled mm-hmm. away and then crying like a, uh, a banshee. Mm. I didn't want to say mm. uh, yeah, another yeah. B word, but maybe that's because he got like his face broken up and he's yeah, all he lost his two front teeth. Yeah, you know, so they say. Yeah. Um, so are you that guy because you're Camille and like no one's going to mess with you and you're just going to go, uh, you know, like that? Or are you the surreptitious, uh, you know, a cam phone videographer? who otherwise says and does nothing. Are you the dude? I don't know how closely you've listened to this uh, video, and I've gone Zapruder on this. Mm-hmm. There's a guy, there's a woman just shrieking, oh my God, get him off there, get it. Oh, mm-hmm. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, I, and I then heard there, some of that. And yeah. then there's a guy saying shh to her. She's being shushed by a guy. Are you the United CEO mm. voluntarily reaccommodating people? Who are you in this? I, I'm, I'm thinking that you're down. I'm the dude in first class that doesn't understand why our flight hasn't taken off yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little annoyed. That um, we are later still. And I'm way, wondering my, to myself yeah. if I'm going to continue to get free drinks or if the disturbances from wow. the back of the plane are going to disrupt wow. everything. Did you – was your first re- <laughs> response on Twitter hashtag never fly coach? Um, not hashtag never fly coach, but this is, the, this is the lesson here that 
you should always fly first class. Why is this not in the drinking game? Coach. Uh, Camille and the drinking Wasn't game in there. What never Cam- fly coach? Yeah, was that in there? Camille uh, talking know. about coach. There was the place? Camille references that he's rich. Yeah. No, this is not about being rich. This is about no. Uh, you just described this. Smart, you prudent. sound like a guy with a monocle and like you know a bag with a dollar sign on it and spats on. You're like you know there's people <laughs> in the back. If Black Ron Paul had money, that's there's, who there's he would a, sound there's like. A little, there's a little yeah. sarcasm. Wasn't just there. editing. Survival there's a little reports. sarcasm there, but I, yeah. but seriously, they would never pull me off the plane. The Camille Foster survival report. There's something. There's something to be said for for race in this story we really did dodge a bullet here um because i was talking to a friend today and he mentioned that his uh his he was talking to his spouse about this situation and she said oh my god please tell me he's not black because were he black this is a story that we would be talking about for ages everyone would know this person's name there would be a national sort of moment uh where we had to reflect on all of our deep dark issues we would get all sorts of great hashtags like uh Flying while black flights matter and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but but we missed that. We dodged that bullet. And I can only I think about it now in retrospect, and I'm like, oh, that would have been funny. But had it actually happened, I would have wanted to shoot myself in the face. Well Because it would have it would have been serious. It came up a bit. A bit. Uh-huh. A very, very small bit. That, You're saying that race, is, race. Yeah, thing. a little yeah. bit. And I just posted this on Twitter because I noticed in a matter of five minutes. The various historical calamities that this was uh, that this was uh, compared to the first one. This is a, a quote from a BBC story on this. I mean, it's gone <laughs> it's gone global. Uh, the lawyer, and this is uh, Mr. Dow, the passenger's lawyer. The lawyer said he did not believe Mr. Dow's race played a factor, despite an email he had received suggesting that he was quote the modern day Asian Rosa Parks. Wow. Um, uh, you Very know, brave. it was, yeah, same, same thing as 1955. Exactly the same thing. In Montgomery, uh, uh, <laughs> next, he- <laughs> next headline, I think it's might be the same story. The headline was, uh, uh, Mr. Dow, by the way, is Vietnamese and was born in Vietnam. You, uh, United Airlines passenger ordeal, quote, worse than fall of Saigon. What? Wow. Yeah, that was from, uh, wow. I, 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 either, either his, uh, daughter or lawyer, uh, next one. So now we have the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War. And this is a tweet from Katie Turr. Everybody knows Katie Turr from NBC. You see Santa Barbara uh, represent um, Daily Nexus. Uh, she's she's, she's uh, getting mentioned two dating, weeks dating in a, a row. a friend here. of mine, too. Um, oh, really? uh, yeah. I didn't know uh, you were friends with Keith Olbermann. By, by the way, on, oh, come on, man. That's not that's from a long time ago. By the way, Katie's uh, uh, father is uh, trans and is the person in the OJ documentary who shot both the police chase and uh, the Reginald Denny beating was Katie Turr's both father, well, then he was a man then, and mother. They were both, oh, he, I think she was flying and he was shooting. It's, uh, well, yeah, helico- yeah, helicopter pilot. Helicopter pilot. Yeah, it's an amazing and, story. Yeah, there's Katie's Katie She Turr's was estranged parents, from him. I hope that she's, she's back with him uh, or, like, you know, back in communication with him. I mean, it's traumatic. What, are, what yeah. on earth are you talking about? Are there two different people here, her mother and father, or is it her father who's also her mother? Oh, oh God, Camille. No, they're two different people, but her father has now... Uh, uh, is transitioning at the moment. Okay, this um, is the most confusing. Yeah, no, it, made, it made sense how I said it, didn't it? I don't know Did anymore. You? No? I don't know. Go just, on. Just Google Katie Turr's father. <laughs> but Katie Turr, the final tweet in this trifecta of historical calamities in which this uh, United incident was compared to, Katie Turr tweeted, 
did this lawyer just call the airport officers who dragged the man off that United flight, quote, stormtroopers? Uh, yes, in fact, he did. So that's Nazism, the Vietnam War, and the civil rights struggle is what this has been compared to. Uh, because in the age of social media, uh, we really have no sense of proportion. Well, maybe the stormtroopers was, uh, uh, as, as Camille would point out, a Star a Trek s- reference. A Star Trek reference. Yeah. Yeah. It might have been a, a really, Star Trek. I don't know, which which is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's all Battlestar yeah. Galactica. I mean, I remember that episode with uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Dan and Beer and is just like G-chatting <laughs> us like crazy. No, no, no fortunately, fortunately, he's not. <laughs> but um, I will say that uh, this is all... This is all a little complicated. Maybe we move away from this and move to something simpler, like uh, foreign policy. Yeah. And maybe we try to make sense out of this complicated and frightening world uh, that, we, uh, that we all inhabit together. And uh, in order to do that, uh, we have uh, brought in our friend, uh, one Michael Weiss, a senior editor at The Daily Beast and co-author uh, of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. With Hassan it's a, Hassan. It's a, it's a book that yeah. you wrote. The Syrian uh, so quite, co-author quite who's so good they named him twice and also a CNN contributor. That's right. Yeah. Yes, there he is. Weiss, thank like you New so York, much. New York, New York. Thank yeah. you for uh, hanging out with us. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, My yeah. pleasure. Yeah, so um, for, for folks who don't know, uh, Matt and I first made Michael's acquaintance uh, on The Independence, I believe. He was a, a guest on our program. Right. I think it was, we were actually asking for – this used to happen quite with some frequency – um, there'd be something complicated happening in the world and we would need someone uh, who is smart enough to talk about it and actually be uh, good on TV. And then Moynihan was like not answering emails. This, so this, <laughs> this, this was like yeah. a week well, or daily occurrence. It was, it was Yeah, it, and, was, it was me and then Eric Bowling uh, and then Michael Weiss. <laughs> so, I'm not sure how so, true that is. And so this is kind of true. And then at some point, uh, I forget who, they asked Moynihan like, is there another Moynihan, like, but one who answers emails? Is that, it's like, yeah, Michael Weiss. Yeah, no, the, my answer to that question was one that is actually a lot. I don't know if lot... that makes me more socially desperate yeah. or equally smart. No, so it's, it's I'll leave like, that up to the it was the moment where I had to admit that, like, no, he's actually smarter than me and knows this stuff. And, you know, is writing. Yeah, I thought you guys always had me on the air because you wanted to see that vein in Justin Raimondo's forehead. (laughs) I'm not familiar with visually through the Internet. Who is that person? I don't know who this person is. Black Ron Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, it is. uh, It's it's wonderful to have you here Um, in a way. I mean, Matt and I, we have taken credit for your uh, success and uh, rise to prominence since uh, appearing on The Independence. We know that we have uh, contributed mightily to your career. So it's nice that you uh, you're here to repay the favor. That's great to hear. Um, I'm going to send all my trolls to you guys. Yes. Yes. By the way, can I say that I signed up Michael's uh, ISIS book? Is that right? Yeah, when I was working yes, at he did. that publishing That's right. company. Yeah. He's that, the one who convinced me to write the book. Actually. Yeah, I convinced him. Michael, and this is, Michael might not remember this, but this is true. He wanted to write a book on Ukraine, oh. um, which would also, He's also expert on that matter. Uh, would have been timely. But uh, but the ISIS book really took off because it's a very, very good book. And there's and I'm going to be his, uh, his promo guy here now, but there's a new and updated edition, which is even better. So buy it. There's, well, a, there's another move. Just before we start asking about the actual current events, uh, one of the greatest moments of the independence came when we were doing a live show at night. Weiss was the first guest. We were talking about the troubles in Ukraine, and he left. And then, much like our podcast last week, in I which the that, bombing yeah. started, started um, the I don't know exactly. I think that's when uh, Russia uh, took Crimea or something like that. At that moment, it was on right now. It was on live TV, and there was like, "Go get Weiss!" <laughs> they, they dragged him out of his car and yeah. brought him back. And we did live TV for a half an hour at the back end, just like ad-libbing. And it was great. We knocked it out of the park. 
Thanks to Michael Weiss. And okay. you didn't pay him. So, uh, hell no. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I haven't collected a dime since. So, thank you guys. Well, Michael, you it's a. It's great that you're here with us today because, as I, as I mentioned, there really is like a bunch of serious stuff going down. Uh, last year, um, last week, sometimes it feels like last year because so much is happening. This Matt opening beers. Um, we, uh, we had the situation in Syria, which, of course, has strained relations with the, uh, with the Russians. Uh, there's been some, uh, some dust-ups in the U.N. this week uh, with respect to Russia and China. We're both voting against this resolution. Um, we've had uh, the situation that is still developing in North Korea with some, uh, some interesting trolling, it seems, uh, from the Koreans last night. Mm-hmm. Um, the Trump administration seems to be changing its perspective on any number of important issues. I think this week they are actually fine with NATO. Uh, and not cool with Steve Bannon, which is a little strange. Um, I wonder, Michael, because after after the, uh, the the strikes last week, the big question seemed to be, what the hell is the Trump doctrine? Uh, and we did get um, sort of a bit of an answer from uh, from Sean Spicer um, earlier this week, uh, and uh, I think we have audio of that. Do you know what the Trump doctrine is on foreign policy, and can you explain it to the? to us. Yeah, I think the, the Trump doctrine is something that he articulated throughout the campaign, which is that America's first. We're going to make sure that our national interests are protected, um, that we do what we can to make sure that our interests, both economically and national security, are at the forefront. We're not just going to become the world's policemen running around the country, running around the world, uh, but that we have to have a clear and defined national interest wherever we act, and that it's, it's our national security, first and foremost, uh, that, that has to deal with how we act. In Syria fits in that doctrine? Absolutely. I think if you recognize the, the threat that our country and our people face, if there is a growth uh, of use or spread of chemical weapons of mass destruction, um, those, the proliferation of those, the spread to other groups uh, is a clear danger to our country and to our people. Uh, so America's first. That is the Trump doctrine. Uh, does that make sense to you, Ice? What, what on earth does that mean? Well, if it's the reference to the 1940s, uh, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh ideology, then it, it, it makes alarmingly clear sense, uh, which is to say America is becoming an isolationist power, not intervening, not, not, not concerning itself with world affairs. And all we're going to do is, is kind of tacitly allow dictatorship and authoritarianism to rise. I don't think that's the case, though. I don't think Trump is historically literate enough, and certainly not the people around him, to understand what that means. So I think it was, a, it was just a rhetorical flourish mm-hmm. that was used uh, essentially to say, you know, as John Kerry did in 2004, we should be building up fire stations here at home in America and not in Iraq and abroad. And, you know, that, that's a populist sentiment that appeals to a wide swath of the electorate, left and right, which feel that, you know, America has spent too much money and too many resources and too many young lives uh, intervening in world conflicts. The problem with that is that, you know, every time you have this pendulous swing back to a kind of let's pretend that we're this world island and nothing else exists besides us, the world has a way of unfortunately intervening in our affairs or bringing our attention back to the fore. So, with Trump, and again, I, I don't pretend to know what motivated him. I mean, you can make a very coherent case that the use of chemical weapons anywhere, particularly in a war zone that has American hundreds, uh, if not now over a thousand American troops in country, uh, is a, such a violation of an international norm and such a war crime that it needs to be met with a military response. I don't think that's what did it, though. I think for him, it was you know, oh, my God, I've seen dead babies on television and my daughter is telling me I need to do something about it. And also, 
if I'm going to be really cynical and I don't subscribe to the sort of Greenwaldian left or Cernovician right conspiracy theory that this is all just wag the dog, but it is convenient to wage a military confrontation abroad uh, at a time when domestically you're in peril and you're, you know, confronted with all of these terrible scandals. I mean, today, not to, to sort of get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, the use of this mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, the, mm-hmm. the, the largest piece of American ordnance since Nagasaki. Everyone's talking about that. What they're not talking about are, to my mind, three big stories that broke on the domestic front that implicate Trump even further in this kind of, is he a Manchurian candidate or is he kind of in cahoots with the Kremlin? One was the Carter Page. They, there was a FISA award out for him because he was meeting with Russian spies. Uh, two was a piece that actually didn't get much attention, but it was written by Alexander Litvinenko. Remember him, his old co-author, Yuri Felstinki, uh, showing very convincingly, actually, that Michael Cohen, Trump's longtime lawyer or consigliere, if you prefer, as I do, um, was probably involved in a money laundering scheme uh, involving the uh, Russian mob. And actually, the pastor of all this, believe it or not, was a longtime Russian hockey player. Um, and number three, what broke in The Guardian today by Luke Harding, my friend, which is that GCHQ, which is Britain's version of the NSA, mm-hmm. was on to Trump and his team's ties to not Russian officials. Like, we can come to this subject of, well, is it okay to meet with ambassadors and diplomats, but Russian spies, Russian operatives, as far back as 2015. And this is a guy who announced his candidacy in July of 2015. So you're looking at the very infancy of his attempt to run for the presidency. That's all alarming stuff. That's all things that deserve attention. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about Moab, um, which is now trending on Twitter. Uh, So there is, I think, an element of this, you know, if, if we divert America's attention over there instead of over here. And, you know, truth That's, be told, in pursuit of, you know, rational military objectives, however you want to define them, it's going to take some of the pressure off. Yeah. Well, whatever whatever rational military objectives are, I think part of the issue here has certainly been that there's a, a great deal of confusion as to what exactly the Trump administration is trying to achieve, achieve what it hoped to accomplish by uh, sending over uh, those uh, that barrage of rockets, which apparently did not prevent mm. the Syrians from uh, from taking off and, and having additional flights. Um, I I want to I want to delve into um, some of the uh, sort of conspiracy uh, theory stuff that you that you referenced, and also the the sort of broader uh, Russian connection uh, that that may exist. But perhaps just to stay on this sort of Trump doctrine piece of this for a while, I wonder if uh, Matt uh, Moynihan, if you guys have sort of been able to suss out what on earth it is that the uh, the Trump doctrine actually means, what it represents, and whether or not any of the recent uh, involvement of the Trump administration in sort of Syria and 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 uh, the recent action in North Korea, uh, and even the broader sort of Middle Eastern um, offensive that seems to be scaling up, uh, what all of that suggests uh, about the Trump the Trump doctrine. This certainly doesn't seem isolationist. Yeah. No, I mean it doesn't. I mean the, the 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 first thing is that the Moab, which I was wishing that I was actually doing the voiceover of the show today, so I could say in that with that little flourish, Moab. Um, the the thing about that is that that's precisely what he said during the campaign in that incredibly poetic way of I'm going to bomb the shit out of ISIS. But he did you indeed. get the biggest possible uh, non nuke bomb, which incidentally was. 
you know, is like, um, you know, 10 tons versus the smallest nuke that we have is like 300 tons. I mean, they're not comparable in that sense. People are kind of freaking out about that. But yeah, I mean, that's just, it's effectively what he said. But, you know, we talked about this last week. I mean, he is a visual learner in that sense that he sees some photographs and he has a he has a gut reaction to it. But it's also, you know, the National Security Council shakeup. I mean, you're seeing what Donald Trump said the entire campaign when asked about his own experience was said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a quick on the job learner. And he's placed <laughs> people in positions who are going to teach him something that's very different than Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon is on his uh, way. Well, we don't know if he's on his way out, but it looks that way. I mean, the, the Mike Goodwin piece in, uh, in the New York Post in which Trump basically told him that, you know, I didn't know Bannon before. I'm not beholden to him. It was, a, it, was a, it was a shot across the bow in a way. And Maggie Haberman's piece in The Times the other day, which essentially said, you know, the greatly diminished power of Steve Bannon. All of this kind of nativist stuff, this kind of populist stuff, this isolationist stuff comes from Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller. And those guys, Stephen Miller, by the way, wrote the inaugural address. Nobody really pointed this out, but somebody kind of close to the administration mm. told me that, you know, he wrote the address. And then that first address to Congress, which is essentially his first State of the Union, uh, was not written by Miller. It was actually written by two people that were from Gingrich's shop, which it, no one really reported. I mean, I, you know, it was after I did a piece on it that somebody from the administration told me this. And then it was kind of confirmed by Politico and kind of forgotten about. It. But it actually signaled, I thought, um, an early shift away from these guys. And, and you know, I think that shows the power of Jared Kushner and, and his daughter, but also the, and the say, exhaustion of, of being beaten up on that, stuff. I would say to that, you know, it, Trump is trying to become a sort of pantomime version now of an establishment conservative Republican, right? He ran as this insurgent demagogue and he won, I think, much to his own surprise and much to the surprise of his own team. Uh, essentially because people just didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, she lost by like yeah. 70,000 votes, but for her to lose to a guy like that means that it was as much a protest against her candidacy as it was, a, yeah. a, a, you know, a pulling in favor of Trump. Now he realizes that that base is not necessarily going to exist in four years' time, or certainly not going to exist in two years' time when Republicans in Congress face midterm elections. So he's pivoting back to some degree to the center. And yeah, you know, the marginalization of Bannon and Mike Flynn and some of the more wingnutty types in the cabinet. I mean, that's a good thing, objectively, subjectively too. But I, I still don't think he, he doesn't have a coherent strategy or ideology or worldview. For him, it's all just kind of fly by the seat of his pants. You know, I mean, he, he, what he said, like, take the NATO comment, which everyone is dissecting. <laughs> you know, this guy is on record back in 1999 saying NATO is obsolete. Why are we in it? Why are we paying for it? Right. He wrote this. Well, his ghostwriter wrote this in one of his books at that time. In 1999, Vladimir Putin was not anti-NATO in that way. In fact, Putin wanted to join or made noises like he wanted to join NATO as late as 2004. Partnership for peace. So what Shout Trump out. is saying, though, yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, what Trump is saying is, you know, oh, as long as everybody pays the bills, we can get on. So you know, for me, I just see this as his typical assholeish, you know, chairman of the board negotiating tactic, which is, you know, rain, rain hellfire down on your antagonist or your interlocutor until the point that they come at least creepingly to your side of the ledger and then say, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And he's doing this, by the way, now with the Russians again. You know, he tweeted, what, yesterday or today? Mm -hmm. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. That's right. I'm enduring peace with the Russians. I was going to ask I, about I, that. That, that doesn't hours. reassure you that everything will be fine? You don't, you don't uh, take solace <laughs> yeah. in that? Promise, yeah. guarantee from Twitter? Enduring peace with Russia. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, nice work if you can get it, my friend. Um, 
you know? Yeah, no. So I think it's, it's, it's a sort of improvisational style, which look, I mean, you know, I, I'm no fan of Trump. I've written about him. I've written against him, but let, let me say, you know, the, the, the liability here is obvious. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, could start world war three by being reckless and stupid. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it was misreported by NBC that, you know, the Americans are now looking to do a preemptive strike on North Korea if it tests a nuclear missile. That's not true. They're talking about a retaliatory strike, whatever. The, the fact is, he's a much more volatile president than we've ever seen. However, that inconsistency, that volatility can, in a weird way, work to America's advantage because people like Putin and people like Assad and people like Khamenei don't really know what to make of it. I just did a, I filed a piece I mean, this is getting like way in the weeds of Middle Eastern sectarian politics. But that's, that's precisely what I expected. Al Sadr, right? The yeah. Shia cleric in Iraq who is, I mean, has almost as much blood on his hand, American blood on his hands as Al Qaeda did during the occupation. Well, this guy comes out this week and he says Assad has to step down. Otherwise, he's going to face the, the fate of Gaddafi. For a Shia cleric and warlord in Iraq to say that, that's a big deal. And that's him trying to put some daylight between himself and Iran, which he has no love for. But what this says and what I'm told by Middle East watchers is everybody in the region is saying, what the hell do we make of this Donald Trump thing? What is he going to do? Is he going to go to war with Iran? And what is that going to do for the Shia population of the Middle East, which is the minority and which will rally the Sunni majority to go to war with the Shia, which have overextended themselves in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon and elsewhere, and now Afghanistan as well, because the Iranians are working with the Taliban, and so are the Russians, by the way. Let me follow uh, so, up. The, the, the kind of up. madman theory can work to America's advantage. I just don't particularly like this madman, you know, being the one to promulgate it. I want to follow up precisely on that, uh, Weiss, which is to say, um, think a little bit out loud of the possible pros and the possible cons of having kind of the instability uh, centered in the White House, where people just don't know what he's going to do. Uh, and I'm thinking here, I mean, he's, he, w- this is a minor example in a way, but he spent the entire campaign talking about, you know, China is, has been getting away with currency manipulation forever. Like it's completely right. incoherent about it. Um, tons and tons of statements, including 10 days ago on the record saying, you know, we're going to put a stop to that. And then like yesterday or the day before, it's like oh, China doesn't manipulate the currency. Anyway, we've moved on from that. Well, um, you saw the quote right. and just a quick interjection. I don't want to cut off your point, but it's a very brief quote here is that the an amazing thing when President Xi came to Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. and it's it's the sort of thing, you know, when, when someone says to you, have you seen this movie? Have you read this book? And, you know, you're in front of an impressive crowd and you pretend that you have. He's, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. He has no instinct like that. And the quote was to the Washington Post, well, the Washington Post, uh, uh, well, he the journal, he said uh, about uh, Chinese uh, Korean history, he said, this is a quote. <laughs> he admits this freely. After listening for 10 minutes, I realized it's not so easy I felt pretty strongly that they had a tremendous power. They had a tremendous power over, I suppose you say, North Korea. But it's not what you would think. And he says that was after 10 minutes of conversation with President Xi. Somebody made the comment a while ago, the person who has the upper hand in Donald Trump's brain is the last person who spoke to him. And it's incredible that President Xi uh, can actually impress upon him on issues of currency manipulation, which he's, he's actually right about, and the issues of trade and North Korea. But part of the uh, part of the pro-Trump or the Trump sympathetic interpretation of things, and I'm just wearing that hat now without believing it necessarily, but is that um, to launch those Tomahawk missiles while Xi is right next to him mm-hmm. is a way of telling Xi yeah. 
there's a crazy motherfucker here now. To do that now is, you know, Obama wouldn't go that far. He wanted to. He, he flirted with it. He got scared. He didn't do it. It's a different game right now. And so even if the uh, if the North Korea leak story, which I think uh, I guess was leaked by intelligence, it's unclear where that came from um, there. But that that suggests like, OK, we, there's a weirdo Jacksonian in the White House. So everyone's and, got everyone's yeah, got to change their behavior between a moose bush and beautiful chocolate cake. He turns to G and he says, by the way, I'm bombing Syria tonight. I just want to let you know as a personal courtesy, it'd be really helpful if at the next U.N. Security Council vote, you guys at least abstain. Which they that's did. A kind of godfather mafia attack. That, that's a <laughs> scumbag industrialist attack. OK, like I, I, I'm an out of borough guy myself. I know this this type like that. That is, you know, hey, you know, let's make a deal. Oh, I already made it. Just fine here, you know. Um, now, again, that can work to America's advantage, but only so far. And as you say, you know, you say the, the you know, the, the top of Trump's brain is the last person. I would put it as, you know, he's like a, a seat cushion. He bears the impression of the last ass that sat up. And my fear is <laughs> yeah. if he goes to Moscow and meets with Putin, he's going to be putty. Uh, God forbid he should ever meet with Assad. Now, Assad, I think, is I mean, mentally deficient. I think the man is not just a sociopath, but like just one of the mm-hmm. most paramountly stupid human beings yeah. ever to attain power anywhere. That's not to say, though, that he's not charismatic in his own way and he can't convince, you know, IQ deficient people that what he's saying is true. And he's been remarkably effective in, in propagating his own narrative about the Syrian conflict. And you know, there are people who still buy this this bullshit theory that they didn't use chemical weapons because he just gave an interview to AFP saying, oh, it's a 100 percent fabrication and the Americans are working cheap by gel with Al Qaeda and ISIS. So Trump, his impressionability is the problem. And that's a, that's a role for his advisors, right? I mean, that's, you know, the madness of King George. Keep him away from people who might steer him in a dangerous direction. So if he's getting rid of the Bannons, he's getting rid of the Flynn's, and then eventually what's this, um, this pipsqueak uh, white nationalist, Stephen Miller, you know, fine. Then, then the people he surrounded himself with. I mean, look, the, the only thing, the sliver of optimism that I've had is there are several people I quote in my book who know more, who've forgotten more about Iraq and the Middle East than I'll ever know. Uh, and they can go like village by village in northern and central Iraq and tell you the Shia, Kurdish, Turkmen, Sunni split. I mean, like, you know, savants when it comes to this stuff. They're now in the National Security Council. And I know the way that they think and I know what they, they their worldview is and I know what their vision for American foreign policy is. And that gives me a little bit of respite at the end of the day. Now, that's not to say they're going to get their way. Um, but if it looks like the alt-right contingent is on its way out or it's at least being kept down and it seems like maybe Jared Kushner is, is a force for good in that respect, fine. You know, I mean, for, for me, the, the goal in the next four years is America doesn't launch World War III or America doesn't do something irretrievably of, catastrophic and reckless. Kind of, kind of a low bar um, there. And, uh, for, but per, yeah, but perhaps a that's bar, a consequence but, you know, of uh, – of of the dude who's behind the wheel. I mean, I I want to before right. before I pivot to to some of the conspiracy stuff um and the the false flag claims that with respect to the the Trump doctrine uh and America First and mm. it's sort of it's seeming incoherence uh incoherence. I I wanted to ask um about just sort of retrospectively looking back at recent presidents and let's we can just stay in the last sort of quarter century here to make things easy. Um there've been plenty of other foreign policy um, perspectives on offer. We've we've had folks who, uh, who believe in or at least practice uh, sort of a, potter, a pottery barn doctrine. Uh, the Obama administration, President Obama, described it as uh, "don't do dumb shit." 
Uh, I believe that's what mm-hmm. he said. Uh, I don't know. It's a stupid technical, shit, very yeah. technical. Yes, don't do stupid shit. It's very important different differentiator there. Um, and uh, I guess there is a real real politique, uh, which is a, another sort of approach. There there are plenty of positions that are articulated uh, when it comes to uh, sort of these foreign policy doctrines. I mean, what what seems important to me though is outcomes. And the fact of the matter is, and, and perhaps why we're we're sort of um, aiming for different things here uh, with the. The Bannonite influence waning, uh, there do seem to be sort of more interventions, whether or not, uh, you know, Trump actually literally means that after 10 minutes of listening uh, to the uh, president of China, he decided he was going to change his mind or whether since Bannon was already on his way out and he seemed to be moderating in important ways, there was already an intention of bending in a particular direction is not entirely obvious to me. We can only go by sort of what he says and, and speculate a bit. When it comes to sort of the foreign policy of previous administrations, it's not as though um, the the recent years of having experienced uh, statesmen and women in those roles has yielded fantastic results. And I I wonder about the risk of sort of over overstating the extent to which one can have a coherent vision of the world and be very smart about the Middle East. Um, there's a there's a danger in believing you know a great deal, in believing that you can manipulate the pieces on the chalkboard, and that that belief and even the confidence that other people receive from hearing you talk in a smart way uh, about foreign policy, not you in particular, but whoever the president is and his uh, his various uh, persons, advisors uh, surrounding him, that that belief uh, can actually be a source of problems as well. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you finish, but first, I want to point out that the last four presidents, and I'm gonna count uh-huh. here: Trump, Obama, mm-hmm. Bush, Clinton. They've all been hayseeds on foreign policy. We uh-huh. haven't elected well, the last sophisticated. Well, no, 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 they've all been hayseeds. I'm, I'm not, they've I'm, all been I'm talking about out the, of nowhere. I'm people. also talking about their team, though. Okay, and their team okay. is their team is people. But that's that's an important point. Like, that's, and, that's, and, I think that's, they, they're on humble foreign policy. Every, most of all, them, all three of them started that's a, with this idea of humble foreign they, policy, they, including, all, including and everyone forgets about this George W. Bush, who said, you know, pointed the Balkans and said, we need to come home a little bit ourselves. Uh, Obama, the same thing, and of course Donald Trump. And I think the point that I'm making, however is that stating the policy in one particular way, like don't do dumb shit, for example, did you, in fact, not do dumb shit? Or did you, in fact, right. do plenty of dumb shit, well, both you know, by way of doing things a, and, quote unquote, perhaps by not doing things? And it's the case right. that also, all of them know, did. We have this, this category mistake we make that, you know, when you say, well, so-and-so is an interventionist or so-and-so is an anti-intervention. I mean, was Barack Obama an anti-interventionist? This was a guy who ran on a platform of America out of Iraq, America out of Afghanistan. Uh-huh. He's going to wind down America's role in the Middle East. And instead, he ended up fighting three wars at once, arguably four, if you want to count um, Yemen, uh, which was essentially a U.S. proxy war waged by Saudi Arabia. I think right? we have to count Iran. that. Um, that's not an anti-interventionist policy. It's just it's what are the objectives? The objective for Obama is smash and destroy the terrorists. Don't worry about nation building. Don't worry about uh, counterinsurgency. Don't worry about, you know, what comes next to smash and destroy. Now that to me, if your only goal is, I don't want to see a group like ISIS rise to power in the Middle East, not because I necessarily give a shit about innocent Arabs or Muslims being, uh, you know, beheaded or suffering under the yoke of a group like ISIS, an obscurantist uh, medieval cult but because they're going to use that as a base of operations to plan and perpetrate terrorist attacks against me or against our European allies, our closest allies. I mean, France, the UK, Germany, whatever. Um, Fine. But you have to think it through and you have to, my my argument is 
look, at this point in the Syrian conflict, it's too late to do a no-fly zone. It's too late to do a humanitarian intervention the way it might have been waged in 2011 or 2012 or even 2013 after the chemical weapon attack. And I made that argument back then, and I said, I think this is, this is the right thing to do because I could see the writing on the wall. I could see the further radicalization and the rise of jihadists in the country as a direct result of America staying out. So for me, it was a realist calculation, not a liberal interventionist or humanitarian or neoconservative, dare I say, calculation. It was, look, I've seen this movie before. And often when America withdraws, it thinks it's creating equilibrium when in fact it creates a power vacuum that gets filled by America's enemies, and then we create more enemies for ourselves. So for me now, the goal is, look, we're expending all this blood and treasure in Syria and Iraq to defeat or at least degrade and, and vitiate ISIS. Fine. After that's done, what are you going to do? If you're going to pack up and leave, I'll, I can write with crayon what's going to happen next. They're going to come back because the political forces you've unleashed or that you've allowed to uh, you know, endure in the prosecution of this war are going to lead to the further radicalization of Sunni Arabs, the bellwether constituency without which ISIS doesn't exist and without which Al-Qaeda doesn't exist. And so right now, the U.S. policy under Obama and even under Trump, although I'm, I'm getting some vague indications that it might be changing now, is, okay, well, who, who's good at fighting ISIS? Oh, the Kurds. Great. Well, let's back the Kurds. Well, hang on. Which Kurds do you want to back? Well, the Kurds in Syria, they, they seem to kick ass you know, against ISIS pretty well, and albeit they need American air support and direct arming and embedded special forces, but they're good, and they don't care about Assad. Right, but the problem is those Kurds are considered terrorists by our NATO ally, Turkey, and those Kurds are continually, as we speak, blowing shit up in southern Turkey. And also, those Kurds are a minority in Syria, and if they liberate a majority, the majority is not going to see them as liberators. They're going to see them as a new form of conquest, a new form of conquerors. And that means that they're going to link arms, not necessarily with ISIS, but with what you might call ISIS 2.0, the next incarnation of the, the army of terror. Uh, and we don't know what that's going to look like. It could be more nationalist. It could be, you know, even believe it or not, nobody thought there could be something worse and more jihadi oriented than Al Qaeda 10 years ago. And then ISIS came to, to, to the fore. So it could be worse than ISIS. So you have to think these things through. You have to have a strategy. Right now, America is, is relying solely on tactics. And this is true under Obama. It's true under Trump. I mean, George W. Bush, look, um, the Iraq war was the, the single biggest geopolitical mistake in post-war American history. There's no, you can't argue otherwise now. I can say, hey, it could have been done differently. Of course it can. I can give you a counterfactual argument for policies that were enacted that should have been enacted. Maybe things would have turned out better. It doesn't matter. You know, it's what's done is done. Yeah. The fact is we're still paying the price for that war, but you can't just say, right, that war was a debacle. Um, our lesson should be get the fuck out of the Middle East and just leave it alone. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I wish it did. Believe me, I wish it did. I can argue this from any which way you like. I can argue from a libertarian, non-interventionist or isolationist perspective. I can argue from a realist perspective, neocon perspective. Liberal. The, the, the end of the day is bad guys from that part of the world want to do harm to us. And unless we have eyes and ears on the ground and unless we try to contain them, they're going to continue to want to do harm to us. And unfortunately, we've been sleepwalking into a set of conditions whereby, yes, ISIS's footprint or its caliphate is shrunk dramatically. They control 7% of territory in Iraq. They control 25 to 30% of territory in Syria. But that doesn't mean that they've gone away. And if you look at, and I know you wanted to talk on this, this program about other terror attacks in Oslo, in, or plots, I should say, Oslo, Sweden, uh, St. Petersburg. You know what the commonality to all of these terror attacks is? Hardly any of them are being planned and perpetrated by Arabs. 
Instead, now they're being perpetrated by Europeans or mm-hmm. by Russian-speaking jihadis from Central yeah, Asia, which which is interesting the, because the it's the Soviet sphere. Yeah, it's the it's the ability of these these organizations like ISIS to actually project their power abroad. It it does seem and uh, to in important ways evolve and and sure. metamorphosize. And but what it, they're doing now mm-hmm. is they're saying, if we're going to be a busted flush in the Arab world. Let's rely on the homegrown radicals and the foreign fighters who we've sent back into Europe, who we sent back into the right West, to, to the extent carry on the, the jihad. Yeah, to the extent they're close enough. It, I mean, that's a much harder uh, thing to accomplish here in the United States. And and I look, I, I will grant you this much. Um, and there's there's some 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 pretty stiff disagreement between us, but I'll grant you this much. It's it's impossible to know um, what what would have happened and under other circumstances. It's also uh, impossible to know whether or not your your strategy. Um, will be uh, will survive contact with the real world particularly well, um, and it is always hard to know who will take over and sort of fill the vacuum. Um, but if if you got a couple more minutes, I wanted to pivot to some of the uh, the, the Carter Page uh, revelations mm-hmm. this week and and um, sort of related um, Russian United States uh, conversation that has been happening for some time. I mean, specifically, you mentioned the uh, false flag claims that came from both the left and the right, surprisingly, the uh, alt-left yeah. and alt-right agreeing uh, pretty ferociously that this whole thing was a damn setup. Um, I've got sort of two questions for you. I mean, one, how do we know what we know? Um, how, do you, how do you actually adjudicate a, a claim uh, as to whether or not the Syrians actually carried out this attack? And I ask because I know that there are lots and lots of people that pay attention to like the Alex Jones of it all. And there are lots of people who like Ron Paul, for example, who I um, have admired for a number of years um, and had supported his presidential campaigns. And I think he was generally good for promoting certain ideas that are important to me. Um, but on foreign policy stuff, when I heard him say, this is a false flag, there is zero chance that Assad did this. I thought to myself, what are you doing? There's a hundred percent. Well, well, look, I mean, there's there is there's at this point, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest as much. Um, but but, but Michael, I mean, I'll let you uh, I'll let you sort of lay this out. How do we know that the Syrians were responsible for this beyond just sort of assertions of that? OK, so the, the best evidence we have to date is uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders have done uh, tests on the tissue samples and the blood samples that have come from the victims of the Khan Shikun attack, and they say that um, everything that they found is consistent with the use of sarin, a nerve agent that, as best we can tell, and again, um, I, you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, jihadis, rebels in Syria do not possess this, and that we know they don't possess it because if they did, they would have used it before now. And it's very, very difficult to maintain. It is very, very difficult to weaponize. It's not something you can put, I mean, Assad refers to kitchen sarin, the, the the term is an absurdity. Ask any chemical weapon specialist. It's a very mm-hmm. delicate substance to handle. Number two, um, UK government, important down, their chemical research facility, have also tested tissue samples, blood samples, say it's consistent with sarin. Number three, uh, the Russian claim initially uh, was that, well, what happened was the coalition bombed a chemical or toxic uh, substance warehouse in possession or held by Al Qaeda, right. and that unleashed this this cloud. It's a very specific sort of claim. Uh, Karim Shaheen to Khan Shikun, I think within two or three days of the attack, armed with a camera and his own eyes, and you know he wasn't just relying on the the, the testimony of opposition fighters. He went to the alleged warehouse 
and found that all this, it was, most of it was empty, but all that was left was like chicken feet and grain and nothing indicating that this has been a, a storage facility for anything deadly or WMD-like. Well, that's, that's another point. And then, of course, the eyewitness testimonies of, of when and how this uh, bomb was dropped. And there's actually video footage on the Internet of a bomb being dropped by a fighter jet, an Su-22, which is consistent with when people started developing symptoms and going to hospital. Then you have reporting from BuzzFeed. Nancy Youssef, my former colleague at the Daily Beast, who said the Russians were surveilling the area with a drone. Uh, and uh, now I can't tell you how we know this. My mm -hmm. guess is it's through signals, intercepts and signals intelligence. But they turned off the camera on the drone um, concurrently with the attack. And then the Russians, by the way, also bombed a hospital that was treating the patients. This is the reason the U.S. government says that the Russians might have been complicit in the chemical weapons right. attack. Added to which, um, look, we knew that after 2015, or after, or I'm sorry, after 2013, 2014, in spite of what John Kerry and, and the Obama administration had said that we had rid Assad of all chemical weapons, there was always a suspicion, and you can look at the OPCW, Organization for the uh, Prevention Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, you can look at what the Israelis were saying at that time, that he had retained some stockpile. He didn't give it up. The Syrians lie. If you don't believe me, there's a very good State Department cable, cable that was leaked by WikiLeaks way back in the day from some attache or some embassy official in Damascus saying, how do we know when the Syrian government is lying? They're moving their lips, basically. They just lie. Their disinformation, their propaganda is so, it's even more absurd than what the Russians are, are capable of at this point. Um, so all of the evidence, there's an overwhelming mountain of evidence. Oh, I didn't even mention what broke today, which is um, so essentially the NSA caught Right. The Is regime the instructing their mm -hmm. military to load this stuff with sarin. Anyway, so yeah, an the, overwhelming that's the Syrian, the Syrian, you, the Syrian military that yeah. the, the, the NSA the intercepted their communications stuff onto the. Yeah. Before um, before the attack, again, which is pretty damning. Look, evidence against interest, yeah. evidence against interest. This is a president. And I know I said this the day of uh, the attack and then also the day of, of the airstrikes on, on Sherrod Air Base meaning the Tomahawk airstrikes. I said, this is a, this is, Assad was sitting pretty. And this is the next point I want to make. Assad was sitting pretty as much as two weeks ago. Right? He had a president of the White House who, to all outward appearances, was pro-Syrian dictatorship, making snuggle bunnies with Moscow, wanted Putin to be his best friend, wanted to do detente or another reset. Assad had more or less won the war, at least where it was strategically vital for him to win it. I mean, the Russians, the Iranians, Hezbollah, Iraqi militias helped him retake East Aleppo, symbolic hammer blow to the opposition. He's creeping back more territory from the opposition everywhere. Why would he do this? And then this is the, this is the real driving force on the conspiracy. Why would this guy use chemical weapons? Um, and that question to me bespeaks a real ignorance of the totalitarian mind. This is a man who understood after 2013 that he had total and complete impunity to do whatever he liked. He gassed people in a capital city. Saddam didn't gas people in Baghdad in 1988, right? I mean, the, you know, Halabja was well north of, of the seat of Iraqi power, Iraqi Ba'athist power. Assad gassed people in his own capital, killed 1,400. The expectation was to everybody, including the French and the British and the Germans, America is going to kick the shit out of him for this. And instead, Obama cut a deal with Putin, and that deal, de facto and de jure, made Assad a necessary partner in deproliferation for mm -hmm. at least a year, but more, mm -hmm. actually, because we needed the government of Syria to help us get rid of the sarin and VX and mustard stockpiles. So for him, 
he can do whatever the hell he wants and use whatever the hell he wants, and America is not going to lift a finger. Now, the real question is, has his calculation changed? Now, Camille, you mentioned earlier, well, look, I mean, so much for these 59 Tomahawks. What did they do? Syrian jets took off from the airbase. Now, look, I can tell you, I'm not a military tactician and I'm not a, you know, a specialist when it comes to this, but I do talk to people who are. Bombing the runways would have been great for 72 hours, maybe a little bit longer, but then they just fill in the craters on the runways and the planes mm-hmm. can take off again. The more significant damage done, according to, to Mattis, the defense secretary, is we took out 20% of the regime's operable attack fixed-wing aircraft. And those are the, the, the jets they're using now to throw sarin gas at women and children. That's not an insignificant thing. No, I, if it's, I, if I it's true, that could be a symbolic gesture. Yeah, if but it's that, true, that, that's that significant. Is, that, those are, yeah, those are, those, that's 20% of the Syrian Air Force that can no longer kill innocent people. Now, the problem with that is the Syrian Air Force is not really doing the lion's share of killing innocent people. It's the Russian Air Force that's doing it. And here you enter into the quandary of, well, what's America going to do? Because it doesn't want to risk confrontation with Russia, either in the sky or on the ground in Syria. And, you know, I mean, I don't have a good answer for that. My prescription is, well, fine, look at the areas of the country where Russia doesn't dare tread, where America is dominating the skies and also the ground, and focus on that. And that's not a great answer for Syrian people who are suffering in the suburbs of Aleppo or Idlib or Hama. But, you know, again, unfortunately, the, the, the timeline of events has really narrowed the options of what, what's feasible. I just um, one 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 but, fi- final thing yeah. on on just to add something on on why do we know or how do we know that it's not a, a you know a, a grand conspiracy theory, and the Assad interview is is pretty amazing and there's a great actual I think it was in the Economist tracing where these conspiracy theories come from and they basically come back to the Syrian government the Russian government and websites that support them of saying you know there's photos of people without gloves on and everything which of course means nothing mm-hmm. but one of the most <clears throat> important things means absolutely nothing and one of the important things is that. When you have a guy like Ron Paul, it's the same. The same. I said this a couple. Maybe I didn't say it on the show, but when I interviewed Alex Jones, I interviewed Alex Jones for the the HBO show the day after the Russian ambassador to Turkey was killed, and he was on the air that mm-hmm. morning talking about how it was a NATO hit, and he had this long. You know, the sources say this, blah blah blah. And we sat down for an interview. I said to myself, I'm not going to confront him on anything because there's no point in arguing with a conspiracy theorist. And everybody knows this if you ever have. But when I sat down with him, I, at the end of it, I did bring it up for one reason. And I said, you know, Alex, there's no way you make up sources. You say, I have sources. But there's no way to know any of this stuff six hours after this happened. Right. You're cooking the books. Right. It's always a conspiracy theory. With Ron Paul saying this, it's the same thing. Because if, you know... If you know about this stuff, and I'm not somebody who does, but I have in the course of doing something for the show, actually, talk to people who do. And the first thing that they all say is, oh, they bombed they, they bombed a, a shed that had some homebrew sarin in it. And, and you know, that's that's the claim. Right, yes. right, right. So what, uh, what about it? And they, and they it say, look, work it way. doesn't work that way. The way sarin gas works is it's mixed with a precursor chemical and it needs to be done mm-hmm. before it, it like very soon before it is launched if you were to hit something that actually had the precursor chemical and the sarin in the same place it would it would emit a little bit but not much right and essentially there is no yeah. chemical way this could happen so these people like ron paul the fix is in there it, it doesn't matter they're not asking like well if a, a, a you know a um american or something hit something or I mean, i'm sorry a syrian plane or a russian plane hit this what would actually be 
the result. Let me pick up my phone and call someone who's a special in this. And they would say right away, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. Right. So anyway, Michael, mm-hmm. thank you for, for, for coming on. We're gonna, we've taken um, way too much of your time. We thought we would probably get you for 15 minutes, and we've done it for, I think, probably 45. I, ap- so, I apologize for that. I, yeah. I misrepresented the facts. Yeah, you're, you're just like you lure, yeah. you lured him in. The checks in the mail, guys, right? They, well, <laughs> well, we do this. We tell, we tell everybody um, you know, to, uh, that is listening to this program. We have a lot of listeners, by the way, uh, to buy Michael Weiss's uh, book, uh, yes. ISIS, The Army of Terror, new and expanded edition. You can get an e-book and, uh, and a, uh, a paperback on Amazon. And look for my Michael stuff on the Daily Beast and him chattering on CNN. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk to you soon. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to come back. Anytime, we, we didn't get to get into the uh, Carter yep. Page stuff. And, and I, I think you're. Yeah, we'll do that now. You push a little, push a little <laughs> hard. We'll talk about you. We'll talk about you when you're gone behind <laughs> your back. You got it. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Everyone does. <laughs> Carter Page, you want to talk about this stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think. Look, I, Michael obviously knows a tremendous amount about a great many things um, and, I mean, clearly has very strong feelings about the Trump administration. Um, but We didn't, just to uh, interrupt, because our listeners really it. like it when, when we interrupt you, Camille, is uh, mm-hmm. that uh, he's the editor-in-chief of The Interpreter, yes. which is a, uh, a Russian-to-English translation magazine with yeah, a and, hostile view towards Putin. Yeah, I believe that it uh, was initially funded by Mikhail Kordakovsky, so that would probably uh, explain some of the, Just a little bit. the hostility. But um, yeah, and it has actually original pieces that that I think um, weren't ever in Russian, just by by Russian specialists. The thing about Michael and the good reason uh, to have Michael on the show for all of all of you out there who are uh, listening with your um, ear pods on that I can see hanging out of Camille's ear right now. Uh, AirPods. Is that what I call it? EarPods? Yeah, you're not um, supposed to tell that I'm, I'm wearing those yeah, yeah, in addition yeah, yeah. to my headphones. In addition to your headphones. It looks oh my ridiculous. God, you are. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, wearing like two baseball caps. Um, but yeah, so if you, it, it, you know, all of you that are that are listening, you know, walking around in your car and, and, and seething, the great thing walking is if you are- Walking around in your car. I said walking around or, or in your car. Or or in the case of Garrett Quinn running the Boston Marathon. Oh, wow. He's, okay. He uh, sent me an email saying, uh, you guys, do me a Garrett Quinn accent, please. Uh, fucking do a, do a podcast there. Because I'm running the marathon. <laughs> He's running the marathon Monday. You wanted to make sure that the new podcast a, was dropping. You know, so. I'm going to have a heart attack uh, when the terrorist <laughs> attack. I love fucking Sanaya brothers in Back Bay, Boston, r- lighting off bombs. That's what he's going to do. I told him I, c- I couldn't believe that they're having a two day marathon. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Garrett is starting uh, today. He's in Hopkinton today, and he just started. Uh, going to get a little head start. Uh, you don't want to embarrass himself. But for those who know, I was going to say just a nice thing about Michael is that when you. Uh, when you disagree with Michael, he he really knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's incredibly well informed, and it's not a guy, um, you know, these Jeffrey Lord types that I guess he's pitted against on CNN a lot, where you can toss around like a rag doll because they're supposed to speak on everything. Michael's uh, uh, focused in a laser like way on a couple of issues, and and that's Russia and the Middle East, uh, two very complicated issues. But 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 we appreciate him 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 coming. Yeah, yeah. But but with respect to the sort of recent revelations, um, and and those revelations are that we now have someone disclosing, someone's, plural, disclosing uh, that there were, in fact, FISA warrants issued uh, in res- with respect to Carter Page, the uh, former unpaid, as I understand it, national security advisor to uh, one Donald Trump, 
while he was a candidate for president. Um, as I understand it, um, the the FISA warrants were issued and the we haven't seen these uh, sort of the requests for the warrants, but they were approved by a FISA court judge. And we should talk about what that actually means. It means they approve um, everything. Well, well, for the most part, which is yeah. interesting. Um, but the the general claim here and this, I believe, was the Washington Post who described these revelations as the best evidence uh, that something was mm. going on. Um, and the best evidence is not necessarily the same thing as particularly good or convincing or persuasive evidence. Um, and it, it, it might, in fact, be the best evidence. Um, I just am not persuaded. Uh, the FISA court, um, as, as you mentioned, Michael, um, does approve just about everything um, that, that comes before it, uh, according to the little that we know. Um, and I say the little that we know because we are basically relying upon leaks of information and disclosures uh, that are sometimes official, but are of a strange nature. Initially, the numbers that we were seeing were like 99% or 98% of the actual request for FISA court, uh, for FISA, um, for FISA, I I was going to use the word wiretap. I'm not sure if that's the right, or or FISA surveillance. Surveillance, Um, FISA surveillance requests are approved. Um, there was a FISA court judge who commented on that statistic and said um, warrants. Uh, I'm being corrected by Dan Beer. Thank you, Dan. Um, of these warrant of these warrants were approved. Um, but there was a judge who responded to this and said, well, that might not be quite that high. Well, how high is it? Was it 95 percent? The real issue is that there isn't much transparency here at all. Almost and even not. in the cases. Not, right. Almost none. Um, And even in the cases where they aren't approving these things, oftentimes, as we understand it, they are giving them information as to what they would need to do in order to get an additional in order to get this darn thing approved. And simply listening, simply getting that approval is not evidence of anything. Um, Whether or not these sorts of uh, this sort of surveillance is leading to convictions um, is actually stopping terror plots. Or it's just really, really expensive um, surveillance a surveillance program. Whether or not it's a security theater is a huge question. Um, the constitutionality, the efficiency, the effectiveness of these programs is still very much in question. Um, and here, in this particular case, Carter Page, for all of the accusations, it's not as though his sentiments about Russia and the United States' policy towards Russia were secret. Like he took a trip to Moscow and gave a speech there that was highly critical of the United States government. What kind of spy does that? Aren't you supposed to fly under the radar? Um, I, I just think that there isn't a lot of compelling evidence. Not have a lot you, of have you ever seen evidence. this guy interviewed? Yeah, it's, you wouldn't think spy. You'd just think dope. Yeah, yeah. Dupe, dope. Dupe and a dope. Uh, like he had a screen removed from his frontal lobe at some yeah. early. I mean, go go and look if you haven't seen it on YouTube. His interview with Chris Hayes about uh, two months ago, when Hayes is like, um, "So did you meet with like some Ruskies uh, at the uh, Republican convention?" And he's like smiling. And he looks <laughs> weird. He looks like he's twelve years old. And he's like, "Um, wh- it." What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he looks like he's dumb. Like he doesn't know what he's going, what's going on. But he also couldn't answer a question straight at all. Couldn't remotely wrap his brain around it. Um, he's always been known as Michael Flynn was known as just like C League, D League, Z League mm-hmm. of foreign policy people in Washington. Um, so I don't think that he's in the middle of any any. He's not himself an active member of anything sophisticated, unless he's playing. 
you know, usual suspects or something like that. He's playing the the the, the total dumb guy who's secretly brilliant. Uh, but I really doubt that. He, I mean, nobody the, a few things to remember about this. One is that he was fired. Um, that that you know he didn't carry over into the administration, which mm-hmm. we tend to forget about. Which is why uh, the language is used as not people in the administration. It's Donald Trump associates. I mean, that's just that's when you know they're talking about Roger Stone, Carter Page, and um, Paul Manafort, who was running the campaign but was fired too. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that that if if he had contacts with with Russians, which it appears that he did, uh-huh. not only from reporting, but from his own responses to this stuff. And, you know, today he was talking about, well, you know, and he's doubled, he's, he's thinking, doubling back on certain things like, you know, acknowledging that there's there's uh, wiretaps and saying, well, you know, we'll see the transcript. I don't remember saying this. And it might have come up when he's talking about sanctions and the rest of it. But. You know, that's only one thing. That's only one step. And the step is that this guy might have gone freelance. I mean, this was always the thing with Watergate. What did Richard Nixon know and when did he know it? Uh, He might have gone freelance and might have had contacts with these people and nothing might have come of it. Um, And the Russians, of course, uh, are, uh, you know, I would be surprised and I would I would think they were quite silly if they didn't do this. They had a guy who is obviously a mark. Uh, There is this intercept of of Russian communications where they say, you know, the guy goes to the guy goes to Moscow all the time. He's there. What did he say? Like, do you remember this thing? He said he's there more than we are. He's always <laughs> in Moscow, and he said, and they said he's dumb too. And if they don't try to take advantage of this, what it could mean at the end of the day is that the Russians saw a stupid guy that was associated with the Trump campaign and tried to exploit him. Maybe they didn't get anything out of it. Well, it doesn't appear that they did. I mean, there's been no easing of the sanctions. Um, you know, Mike Flynn was fired, and they the administration now has wag the dog or no wag the dog. It doesn't matter why you do it. It matters what happens. And what happened was uh, quite annoyed the Russians and said quite openly that, um, that you know, we're, we, we're going to do this again if we have to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's quite, you see the Sergei Lavrov interview, like he says, we don't even know where the, the foreign policy is incoherent. And, uh, you know, it might go a bit pear-shaped. And it has gone a bit pear shaped. Right so now we have. It's uh, not. It hasn't been a very effective campaign. There's more. Happened. There's a more um, openly confrontational or hostile or tension filled relationship between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah. Than there has been in ten years. Right. Problem. Arguably fifteen. Yeah. Right. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. And name the moment that was more ten tension filled than we are at right the, now. The, it's been the, a good the, long time. It, it has to be. Uh, yeah. That Georgia. Air, air, Georgia well, in two thousand. Ge- Georgia was pretty close. Um, George is definitely close. I would say the orange revolution, the color revolutions are pretty yeah. close, but, but I would say, um, either the color revolutions or, or the Balkans war and, uh, and, you know, bombing Serbs right. and, you know, Russians, uh, you know, hanging out at airports and things. If you remember, uh, your, uh, Yugoslav war stuff, but yeah, this is, this is definitely the most tense, uh, time that we've had with Russians. And I think that Carter Page is a pretty, a pretty, um, insignificant guy in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if it was Mike Flynn and he was running the National Security Council, uh, that'd be pretty significant for sure. And then again, I mean, look, we have to fault the Trump administration for hiring a guy who got a paycheck to attend an RT dinner and sit next to Vladimir Putin and a couple of seats away from Jill Stein. Uh, This is somebody who deserves to be on RT to not be in the White House. There's a I mean, this goes back to what we started the show talking about a little bit or started with the Weiss uh, segment, at least. Um, right now, the people who are running uh, Trump's foreign policy are people like Mattis, McMaster, mm-hmm. um, Tillerson. We, we don't know how much uh, impact he has on the actual foreign policy of the United States at this point. But it's so he's Russia, making waves right now. He's making waves yeah. right now. It's Russia hawks. 
and it's also interventionists. It's people who are bending the uh, administration's ear. Josh Rogan had a piece uh, in the Washington Post today saying that uh, uh, I mean, the, the tweet tease was that the administration either needs to, like, convince America to double down in Afghanistan or get out. Mm-hmm. But the actual uh, thrust of the piece is that the hawks in the administration and the military are gaining sway with the administration uh, right now, with Trump right now. And that tension that Trump had shown in, um, you know, in interviews, which I've mentioned before, where he would say, we've been there for 15 years. What are we doing? And then in the same paragraph, in the same interview, he would say, well, what we really need to do is untie our hands. Mm -hmm. Well, what do we see today? He untied our hands of not using this weapon. Barack Obama was the one who authorized the potential use of that weapon, according Mm -hmm. to reporting. So it's important to Mm -hmm. keep that straight, too. But there is talk now among the military brass of we need a new surge in Afghanistan. Obama And and boots on the ground in Syria. And boots on the ground in Syria. And we've already escalated a lot in Mm -hmm. Yemen and in the the fight against ISIS. There are 18, uh, you know... Uh, people that we're supposed to like that we killed with our bombs apparently today in Syria. Remember the first foreign policy decision. Remember that first, you know, non-state of the union, state of the union. Remember the the um, thunderous ovation for whom the wife of a, of, a, of a of a seal who died in a raid in Yemen. I mean, it was it, the writing was not on the wall. It was right at the beginning. That well, this stuff happened. And, and this and this brings up something that I, I think I, I'm not really interested in in the conspiracy theory of intent. Mm. Um, but I think it is worth observing what happened this week or, you know, in this, in, in the, in the past week, since we've been here before. Yeah. Um, he sent 59 Tomahawk missiles into an airfield in Syria. People soiled themselves yeah. praising him. Yeah. I mean, something like 83%, if you, if you uh, believe the reporting on this of uh, us, uh, uh, editorial board, uh, newspapers, we're like high-fiving Donald Trump. This is a guy who got uh, a historically low level of support from editorial boards of newspapers, something like you know 5% or less uh, endorsed him. Um, Brian Williams, obviously, Fareed Zakaria. Gu- guided by the beauty of our weapons, uh, Brian cow. Williams, I mean, on, I, on the night of the uh, They better put a attack. restraining order on him tonight because he's like, <laughs> my, the Moab. Yeah. Oh, the Moab. Yeah. Put my hands <laughs> what on the, the Moab. Yeah. Where's Black love, Ron Paul? I love put the, the hands on the Moab. I love the fact that uh, Fareed Zakaria or Brian Williams, it's not clear, has now turned into triumph. The insult. <laughs> the Moab with the touch. Look at this one with the Moab. Crazy. Um, question question about the Moab, um, yeah. which uh, yeah. is puts is hands around double Moab. doubly means uh, the m- massive ordnance air blast and mother of all bombs. Which uh, which some, one of those do you think came first? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I, I mother of all it was mother of all bombs, which was accused of uh, being a, a tool of the patriarchy on a number of people. Uh, verified no. Twitter, yep, on Twitter today, a guy, huh. one guy from Inside Higher Ed, is like, is, is there any? Any more, um, you know, obvious sign of the militaristic patriarchy obvious by is the, the right mother yeah. of all? You know, this 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 thing. By the way, <laughs> all, the, all bombs are shaped like penises. Yeah, if you notice well, that the the yeah. hawks is yeah. the right word. Yeah. Ma- oh God, <laughs> mom's listening. By the way, stop. Keep it. Keep it. Keep, you know, stop killing these beers here. <laughs> and they're actually called killing time. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, who sent uh, these? Who sent these? Well, this this is uh, Dan this Beer. Is what I wanted to do no, not Dan Beer. And by the no, way, but this week, one. but this week we we, we can to... we can thank well, one Spencer last... Smith. Okay. Uh, he is uh, his his Twitter handle is Libertarian Army. Well, it, it guess the name there is Libertarian Army, but his Twitter handles. At lib twit 
army. You should have spelled out Twitter there. Oh, brother. come on. Maybe because someone took it. Uh, but in God, either case, he was complaining. very generous. He yeah. sent like uh, boxes. So we have so many, so many beers. In fact, I'll open these another. Are, these are Texas beers, um, right? These are Texas beers. Okay. He, is a, he is a Texan. Uh, this is a Willen, Willen Mosaic I wanna, Pale Ale. I want to thank uh, you, especially because all this whiskey yeah, was starting. I drank, I've drank more whiskey in this room with mm, you yeah. people because of our listeners, and I'm not complaining. No, yeah. it's it's delicious I, whiskey. It's incredible. No, it's, it's like you're good. in this room. It feels like you're a prisoner of the Irish Republican Army. Like, <laughs> just uh, we're going to give you some fucking whiskey. Take it, you bastard. Stay in the fucking room. You know that. And like, go run the know, marathon in Boston. Quinn, little bastard. Oh, watch out for the bams. Well, I brought That's the Northern Irish. Yeah. Thing. Well, we we have we have a backlog. Um, I did bring the beer tonight to give us a break from the brown fluids. Yes, and, and people, you. you, you By the way, I'm know. still drinking the brown. brown yeah, I understand. Well, well, who, we have some, and some he's still left. drinking his high life. Out who who we do. I, I okay. don't. I'll get the right. name. Get the I'll name. get the name, and okay. I, we will thank him. And I'm uh, drinking in, a very big high life. I didn't know that Camille was drinking all his booze. It's fine. This this room is filled with. I mean, this is very. This is almost embarrassing, except it's wonderful. No, it's not embarrassing. No, it's not. It's not embarrassing at all. But, but but thank you to to the, the LibTwit Army who is uh, what's his name <laughs> LibTwit Army yeah uh, our, our friend Spencer Smith oh so, Spencer uh, thank so you Spencer. thank you Spencer Spencer uh, you've, you you've been name checked you're an American hero yeah you're a hero of Texas the That's Republic right. of Texas and uh, we appreciate it I so, want to make sure that and we're bef- drinking it before we um, mm-hmm. uh, we sign off I know we have other things to talk about but just to got but, one more big thing to talk about uh, what what's that. Well, I mean, let's – well, not, not no, make your yeah, point. I'm sorry. Well, just Twitter is blowing up right now as we speak on oh, no. something that Jeffrey Shitlord said on CNN, which is that Trump is, quote, quote the Martin Luther King of healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't so, know what that means. Stripping all context the out. the Jesse Jackson. <laughs> stripping all that of that context help. out. I just want Camille to to. I was just trying to get a somebody to preemptively to, defend it. Go. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea what that <laughs> yeah, means. You can't defend something that's that incoherent. I just don't know what's happening yeah. here. I just wanted to do the Jesse Jackson hilarious so that somebody could tick on the uh, on the bingo of the Jesse Jackson voice, but I'm not even going to do it. What, what, oh, there he is. Would it help to look at the? the no, guy, that guy is, Oh my god! <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed oh to. Oh my god! Bakari Sellers. What am I supposed to? Can I? I, can, I, no I can I? Is, uh, can I admit? Uh, wow, Bakari without the beard. Um, I have to admit something. Tell the me. Dumb, the dumbest tweet I've ever... Well, no. Uh, the dumbest tweet you've ever seen? Yeah, I, or no, that I've ever sent. I've sent a lot of dumb ones. But this one, <laughs> I was a little ambitious. Um, I thought that Donald Trump was going to lose, as most of us did, let's be honest. And that morning, I was uh, in Arizona uh, doing a story, and I tweeted something a little, a little ambitious. <laughs> and I said something to the effect of, the greatest thing about today is it will uh, uh, effectively spell the end of Jeffrey Lord's miserable career. Oh, and God was I wrong. Wow. I got to admit, I got to own that one. And that God was I wrong. And every time I turn on like, you know, Sesame Street, now they've got like an autistic kid and like a Jeffrey Lord puppet. <laughs> I can't. It's like everywhere I go, there's like reality shows like house flipping with Jeffrey Lord. It's like he's I, I couldn't. He used to have a column in the American Spectator. He and still I does. On, I, and I was like, who the fuck is Jeffrey Lord? I'll tell you. Little who, Lord Fauntleroy. I'll that tell is, you who that he is a was. great uh, porn, pornographer name. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeffrey Lord. Well, there was Trace. Talking about the. Uh, the so I, was a, oh, I was thinking for a man. Yeah, well, no, I'm just saying it's a common one because there was Tracy Lord. She was underage, oh, though. So maybe that's what it is. Okay. Sorry. Please go ahead, Matt. Well, first of all, the porn name is the name of your first pet. Mm-hmm. And then the name of the street that you lived on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mine is yeah. Muffin Pepperwood. <laughs> yeah, Lassie, yeah. Lassie Piney Branch. 
It's just oh, I love the fact that you don't, you don't love it. You're just like, confused by it. <laughs> it's the worst. Mine, so, mine is such shape. a piney brand. I would yeah. just go with Camille. Mine like, is one just, name. Mine like, is weird. I mean, mine sounds like the Lord of the Manor. Mine's Schaefer Granby. <laughs> That's well, he's, like, like, he's very he's very he's thorough. Dreadful. I'm the full Viscount of uh, <laughs> Schaefer Granby. Thank you very much, people. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> uh, let's get. I want to say the one serious uh, topic. You know, we were talking about the Moab, and we were talking about um, the serious strikes. Mm. There's, it's funny because with Russia, with the rational actor uh, in the Kremlin, I mean, people have to understand that an irrational person in the Kremlin doesn't mean that in foreign policy he's not largely a rational actor, which is why he doesn't invade NATO countries, for instance, despite wanting uh, Estonia mm. to be in Lithuania and Latvia to be part of the 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 new Russian Empire. I mean, they can deal with these things. So Rex Tillerson is uh, talking to Sergei Lavrov, et cetera. Uh, Afghanistan is the never-ending war. I mean, this is just one big bomb as opposed to the bunch of little bombs. Yes. Um, Th- so thousands not, of little Thousands bombs. of little bombs. Uh, so nothing big there, which is why all the Chirons on um, CNN and MSNBC and Fox were about the size of the bomb, right. the largest non-nuke bomb that we have, um, which is kind of a pointless comparison in some yes. ways. Um, but the third thing is that it, that should scare us. And, I, and you know, remember when you gave me that award that you uh, misspelled some things and printed out? Remember that one? I, I won't claim responsibility yeah, for that. But yeah, I do of, remember of, you getting an amazing Dan award. Yeah, it was like yeah, it was the damn Dan Beer. Yeah, God Dan Beer. Unbelievable. Um, He's going to be regretting yeah, can you, us. Can you can you fire him over uh, instant messenger? No, or G- chat. We, no yeah, we need G- him. Chat. We need him. Uh, uh, yeah, that uh, for extreme uh, honorable prescience, I believe. Yes. But I will point back to like a month ago when I said that no one's paying attention to the issues that everyone should be paying attention to, which was Korea, uh-huh. the Korean Peninsula. Uh-huh. Thank you again, Mr. Moynihan. Uh, <laughs> Come well, on. Thank nobody, you. Wow. Yeah, nobody, I'm giving myself credit. If I'm not going to get a fucking award, I'm going to give myself an award. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, people, I'm joking. You know, the itchy Twitter finger before you write yeah. me shit, I'm kidding. Doesn't uh, Vice only a little have here. some uh, Well, some so here's, I mean, here's, here's the thing. And a couple, I mean... You know, it does actually change your perspective on things when you see a headline from 7.40 p.m. tonight, contrary to what Michael Weiss said, that, that I think the reporting, and he might have said that this is um, bunk, but uh, NBC uh, is uh, reporting that, uh, that m- multiple intelligence officials, mm-hmm. and I understand what this could be, it's multiple intelligence officials saying something to put the fear of God into North Korea, mm-hmm. that if um, the, the North Koreans, uh, as seems to be the case, that on Saturday, on the same day of the Day of the Sun celebrations, which happens every year to celebrate the birth of uh, the original, the, the uh, capo de tutti capo of the crime family, the Kim crime family, uh, Kim Il-sung, his birthday, mm-hmm. that on that day they will uh, do a uh, nuclear test. Right. It'll be an underground uh, test. Uh, that if that happens, that the U- U- United States might launch a, a uh, first strike uh, against uh, the North Koreans. That would be pure idiocy. It would be pure idiocy. And the reason I preface this with uh, Syria and Afghanistan is that is that those countries, those ty- types of strikes, it's surprising in a way that 56, 57 tomahawks rain down. But we don't, you know, our teeth aren't chattering, our knees aren't knocking. The reason is because it's the Middle East and, you know, what Their ability and, yeah, to project power here is, ex- uh, is exceedingly limited. Exceedingly limited. When you have somebody that has can, can weaponize um, a ballistic missile, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Maybe hit the West Coast. Hit the West Coast. Uh, definitely. I mean, I mean, they could uh, cause 
significant damage to Seoul within 15, 20 minutes. Uh, they have been moving artillery pieces to the southern border, according to Yon Hap, the South Korean news agency, which is very close to the government, but it's still intelligence officials in South Korea are saying this. Um, you know, the Carl Vincent strike group, uh, American carrier, is has been steaming towards the Korean peninsula. Uh, Japan could be could be hit and uh, hit very, very hard uh, and suffer massive casualties. As a result, I mean, this is somebody who you cannot uh, negotiate with. I mean, it's it's that it's the state actor version of ISIS mm -hmm. in which the only uh, uh, power that they understand is military power. And they use military power as a force for bribery. Because essentially the only thing that the Koreans produce is coal that they right. basically sell to to China. So, you know, as for the skin in the game thing, and um, I have four friends right now who are in Pyongyang, um, four good friends and four, four colleagues. Um, they they won one story that was on, on the show tonight, just a little kind of curtain raiser, a brief one, uh, because those journalists were called. I think it was a 4 a.m. call where they got them up. And they get to gather in the hotel. There's 200 journalists. So the North there. Korean government the calling Korean, the yes, journalists and saying we there. have a big event. And in the past, that has been anything from a pop concert to you know, you know, some uh, Kim Jong Un you know shoe tying session, which everybody <laughs> take pictures of. But you know, they uh, uh, took their cell phones and and um, laptops, but allowed cameras. Like confiscated their yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, and that typically means that Kim Jong Un will be there, and it was uh, nothing to be. Too alarmed about it was an opening of a basically a shopping mall uh, and a couple of big buildings, uh, which are Potemkin in all their ways. There's no running hot water in them, and the bottom level is a bunch of products that nobody ever gets to buy or see in in, in um, the sort of ground floor. And that's Kim Jong Un comes and, and gives a little wave, and, and that's that. That said, uh, it, it it is very very frightening to think that um, you have four colleagues and friends in a in a position that. Uh, when you see a news story that U.S. may launch a strike if North Korea reaches for nuclear trigger, and that would be on Saturday, and they are supposed to be there uh, through next week. I was wondering when they said big event, my most paranoid brain went to Iraq in 1990, and remember the hostage situations that came up with Westerners after the invasion oh, of Kuwait, wow. uh, which hasn't been mentioned, but that was, the, that was the first thing that I thought, is that you have 200 journalists. They, they hand out visas with a little more ease, um, at the Day of the Sun event, which is the one on Saturday. And not coincidentally, um, something else people aren't really pointing out, not coincidentally, those 200 journalists will be there when they uh, detonate uh, a nuke in an underground facility. This is pretty scary stuff. I mean, what happens if you drop a few uh, tomahawks in Syria? Bashar al-Assad will give a sort of, you know, lobotomized interview <laughs> to the Reuters, whoever gave it to, in which he speaks as kind of weird brand of English, and, and then we have some meetings with the Russians. The Chinese also have, of course, we're at Mar-a-Lago, and according to, to people close to the administration, there have been two calls between President Xi and President Trump mm -hmm. since that meeting um, about North Korea. The Chinese have, a, as I mentioned, I think, last week, the Chinese have a very, very big interest here, of course. I mean, they say it's a refugee crisis issue. Um, it's not necessarily that only, uh, something they could deal with. It's the, the possibility of having a garrison state on its border. Yeah. And that would be a South Korean-American garrison state. The United States would win. The South Koreans could win this war. We have 20-plus thousand troops in South Korea. We have um, we, uh, the THAAD missiles that have come, planes that have come, uh, and now the Carl Vinson strike group, which has fighters and all sorts of other stuff on it and goodies. Um, this wouldn't be much of a battle, right? 
I mean, but well, the problem is, except for those twenty nukes. Yeah, look at this. Is the thing is that is that you know if you weigh these things, the United States is going to wipe out the North Korean regime um, in record time. And, but and what so, happens Seoul in between? Will, yeah, Seoul will probably be wiped out in record time, which precisely. is not too far from the uh, demilitarized zone. No, I I have gone to the DMZ from Seoul. And it is a very short trip. Yeah. Um, and I went to the Museum of Unification, which is up on the border. Um, a bit of a, a, a bit of a jingoistic museum about about uh, the evils of North Korea, all of which are accurate, and about the reunification. And there's a little thing outside, in which you can get the, you know those um, kind of binoculars you get on the top of tall buildings. Mm-hmm. Put a, a coin in, and um, you can look at the village on the other side. Knowing this, the North Koreans have set up uh, quite an interesting village where there's a, you know, a, a big, you know, one of those big statues in the middle of town, the middle of town square. People are looking like they're being industrious. And I was watching for a very, very long time. I actually shot this through the, the kind of people. Of the, and it came out pretty interesting. And there were people like, you know, wrestling and doing their thing. And it was just such a strange thing to see this other planet separated by razor wire and you know guard towers and there's a military installation right on the other side the second uh, something is launched and picked up on um radar or on you know whatever it is once they know it's happening that border is going to see some unbelievable fireworks and it's i mean the thing is is when you see people screaming and and, and crying and uh, and you know at the death of of, of kim jong-il there is, I, there was one defector that I spent a lot of time with who told me, you know, that is a real feeling in a lot of ways, mm. is that when you, you don't know what it's like to live in a, in a vacuum-sealed society in which there's one uh, newspaper, uh, Rodung Simong, and one uh, KCNA, the one uh, news channel, uh, one channel period, and, you know, loudspeakers, that perhaps, you know, there's radios that go on automatically and all this stuff. Um, these people are willing to fight, according to him. And... You know, this is not going to be a walk in the park in the sense that, you know, it's not going to end in three seconds. It might end in a week, but it's going to be a bloody end. Yeah. And this is where we are ramping up and ramping up in a big, big, big way. And, and it's friend, terrifying. Our friend Michael Malice, who's been there and wrote a book, uh, Dear Reader, about that and has been on the show uh, mm-hmm. once. Um, we'll bring him back soon, actually. And um, he's a very, very funny book. Uh, Michael Malice is, is also quite He was funny. a very popular guest. Too. Yes, very popular. Yeah. He, um, I had him on uh, Sirius, where I was guest hosting this week, and I saw him also on Kennedy, and that's why I dragged him on Sirius. He's apoplectic about this. He mm-hmm. says that that the whole North Korean regime is based on waiting for this moment. Yes, waiting yeah, for sure. the preemptive strike by the United States of America, so that they can do the Viking funeral uh, with nuclear weapons against Seoul. Um, that's true, and that's. Uh, uh, that that's the the near term future he sees if that preemptive strike is real. I mean, this is the the kind of broader um, the the Juche philosophy, this idiotic philosophy of self reliance. You know, is also a political philosophy too. Right. Um, and the political philosophy of that is all about the demonic imperialist United States. They do not mention Britain. They do not mention Germany. They do not mention France. I mean, if you want to do any business. In North Korea, you go through the Swedish embassy. They right. do not care about anybody but the United States because of the Korean War. And they are so conditioned. And if you look at all this propaganda, and unfortunately I've watched a ton of it, um, you see that one theme that goes through everything. And it might come true for them, as you, know, as you said that Michael pointed out. And it's going, to be, it's going to be a Viking funeral. But this is a kind of validation of everything that they've gotten since they, you know, from their mother's milk onto to, onto being 
underweight and underdeveloped now and when malnourished. You say this this is a validation. What, this what being is. this the, the idea of a, an American first strike uh, is oh, right, not right. is you know. But by the way, one more point on this is that that it's not as simple as that too because none of this can happen without the consent of the South Korean government. And the South Korean government is going through one of its, the most massive crises right. in yes. recent history yeah. in which in which the uh, prime minister has has uh, ended up in uh, being prosecuted mm-hmm. uh, for corruption. And as there's a there's a, a, a sort of stability issue in Seoul. And they're, they as Donald Trump may be understanding when President Xi talks to him. Oh, that's how it is. I think he's probably <laughs> going to get the same thing from the South Korean government. And they are very, obviously, very nervous about being in the crosshairs of North Korea. And as Camille mentioned, the distance between Seoul and the border is not very far. And they're going to be the ones that, that take the brunt of that. Yeah. I mean, you say when you say and you've, I think you've, you've qualified it pretty well, you know, that this would be a, a war that would end uh, quickly, uh, quickly and messily, as you, you also uh, incredibly I mean, messily, it but be, it would end in defeat for the DPRK it, for sure. Well, well, I think it's one of those situations where everyone is taking an L. Like your best player, like yeah. is is injured, and yeah. I mean, like the season is pretty much over after this one. But yet, you kind of won the game. Um, it is a it is a terrible situation. There is no good outcome, it seems to me, um, and it is part of the reason why. Well, Rex Tillerson, um, who who is a, an interesting Secretary of State, when he has talked about this, has talked about uh, not just having this uh, policy of sort of waiting for something to happen here. Um, it, Except that's precisely what we are doing. The the degree of difference, um, so far as I can tell, uh, with respect to the Trump administration and the Obama administration um, as it pertains to North Korea um, is not entirely obvious to me. Uh, the Obama administration also had uh, carrier groups that went and were in the waters yeah, uh, near North Korea. We're rattling. We're rattling. Louder. There's the, well, this, I will and say this. Yeah. There's, there's the, um, the reports in the media about us potentially shooting down, um, shooting down anything that is fired, uh, by the North Koreans. Um, perhaps that is the Trump administration signaling to them. Um, I'm not sure about that. I will say this. Um, it, it seems it is hard for me to believe that there are people um, in the Trump administration right now who are advising the president that it is a good idea to launch like 50 odd tomahawks into uh, into North Korea just to sort of send them a message. Um, I suspect they know, as most people do, um, just how bad this is likely to be. But there's there's sort of one other point that I wanted to make. Uh, and this perhaps brings it full circle a little bit. Um, it is uh, and this interestingly reminds me of uh, that that series we have wrong. Um, North Korea is a place where virtually every expert um, every foreign policy expert, all of the North Korean experts have been um, wrong about virtually everything there. All of their predictions that this state was on the verge of collapse and was likely to, to disappear off of the face of the map in just a, a short time. Um, once dad dies, this won't last. And then again, once dad dies, this won't last. They can't go on like this, except they do. Um there's something about uh, sort of expertise uh, in this arena, the arena of sort of international relations and foreign policy that is not dissimilar from expertise in economics, uh, where you can sort of get these complex situations right for a little bit. Um, at least it seems that way. But actually predicting what will happen and what is likely to happen is hard. Sovietologists, same thing in the uh, 1980s, were not predicting the fall of the Soviet Union. In the fact, they were predicting the opposite. The opposite. It ain't, um, and it ain't then just it, the 80s, too. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. uh, I saw, and I it gave uh, Tucker Carlson some uh, uh, mild uh, 
um, uh, uh, nose tweak last night because he had a tweet saying um, expert Steve Cohen says yeah, sure. <laughs> says that you know blah blah blah, blah we can't you know uh, 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 provoke uh, Vladimir Putin bad things will happen or something yeah. like that and like the word expert um, in journalism is a virtue signal it mm-hmm. is saying that person it's not a specialist right specialist mm-hmm. doesn't have expertise means I got it mm-hmm. specialist means I'm focusing on it right um, and these people Stephen Cohen especially and we've talked about this in the show. Um, especially specialist, uh, it, it especially wrong with his expertise over the many, many long decades. And it's kind of distressing yeah. to see Tucker, uh, fall for it. And, and he's been, it has been a lot of people at Fox who have been friendly to Cohen because of his, because of the kind of conservative turn on, on Russia. But, um, one thing to your point, Although most I, of a lot of his pushback is on sort of the, the like very, some of the pushback anyways, is is against the really extreme, like, oh, my God, Trump is a Putin, uh, Putin uh, stoolie and he's doing what Putin says. It's Putin is obviously sure. But him. but but and, what... and he, he certainly goes a little bit further than that. No, but, I, I, but there is part of part of his sure. But that's current iteration. Yeah, that that's broken that. clock stuff, because yeah. because with Steve, Steve Cohen, when you're talking about that issue only, you're also ignoring that um, the the like sort of. A flip side of that is how Cohen handles the Putin administration, uh-huh. which is to be a unbelievable sycophant and apologist. <laughs> it doesn't matter the ideology of Putin, which you know, in a way, is a sort of a right-wing religious nationalism. Uh, that Steve Cohen just has this kind of genetic disorder in which he kowtows to anybody in the Kremlin. So that stuff is never mentioned because they're talking about the hysteria here, which he happens to be right about because he's on the other side. Uh, to your point about experts. Um, most of that is true, I would say, except for the I would I would I would cleave off uh, North Korea as the exception in which it is completely understandable. And the reason is, is that it is the one country in which there is zero access. Mm-hmm. No, if you are in that country, you are on a leash and a very, very short leash. Everybody sees the same thing. Everybody hears the same thing. People only get to talk to, to people if they are defectors. And we don't know. It's hard to to to. I did a piece, uh, uh, a story a long time ago, which I think you should watch. It was a, it was a half an hour documentary for Vice um, a couple of years ago called uh, uh, Balloons Over Pyongyang or Propaganda Over Pyongyang. Oh, that was really great. Yeah, it was about these balloon launches. And, and you should I, make like a Moynihan YouTube video ah, repository no. for people who... No, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> listeners, Why do you think I'm pimping them? Yeah, yeah, listeners of this show, if they knew where to find your hot crossed maple syrup and your yeah. balloons or Pyongyang, like the goods, the A material. The A material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They would go find that A material. Yeah. Well, that one, that one I think has like almost a million views. The, the, the Pyongyang one, because there's one, do, writing the voiceover for that, and if you watch it, please do, I would, you know, tell me how much you hate it. But there's a bit of a, of a guy in the end, which was a complete coincidence that I met who was a defector, and he said, oh, come to my outside of Seoul, my little shop. I make clothes. He makes it's like a like a you know factory clothes, and he only employs uh, form uh, defectors, uh, former DPRK citizens, and they're all in there you know sewing. And he's the he's the kind of factory boss. And in the corner was a bunch of material, a bunch of um, uh, TVs. And he as a stream, he he gets a satellite and he streams North Korean state television, which you're not allowed to watch. Actually, it's against the law. Keep in mind that South Korea is an authoritarian country in almost every way. 
Um, and you're not allowed to watch it against the law, but they give him a pass because they know that he wants to kind of show people how bananas it is. Our fixer, uh, who's Korean, had never seen it. And he was like, this shit is crazy. But on his wall, he had a you know North Korean uniform. And he told me this story, which is in the piece. Uh, and I won't say the whole thing, but it was one thing about him uh, and some guys wanting to go back to North Korea um, and uh, foment uh, a, a revolution and a coup. And they were going to do it by starting by blowing up a statue of Kim Il-sung. And they got in. And what I had to do in that story is telling me the story. It's utterly fascinating. A bunch of people vouch for this guy. I had to, in the voiceover, say, there's a line in there. I don't remember. It was a long time ago that I did this. But the line was, we cannot independently corroborate or confirm any of this stuff. Mm. And that's the problem, is that you have to caveat everything so heavily. It was a great story. And I did some background. And some people did know him. But even they were like, look, we have no idea. We literally don't know, and yeah. there's no way for us to know. So on the expert thing, I, I do you know, appreciate that um, uh, point, and I agree with you. But on the North Korea one, I give them a pass. And just to say that one of my friends in Pyongyang um, just emailed me, and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's just a weird, it's a weird thing because you have to email back in a – I mean, you're dealing with a, a surveillance state. And yeah. you have to email back in a very stilted uh, way, mm-hmm. and I was trying to telegraph – to that person that, you know, there's a little news that concerns me about you guys there uh, without saying anything. And hopefully one of these people, um, I think that the AP reporter has been who's been tweeting a little bit mm-hmm. uh, has 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 access. But mostly, I mean, think of it this way. All of this stuff, this U.S. may launch strike if North Korea does this new test. No one knows this. This is a completely sealed society. Right. In North Korea, In North none Korea. of the citizens know. No, I mean, right. they, it is. But they, but they already believe that the United States is patrolling their waters and is prepared to strike at any sure, moment. Sure, sure. That they, is the yeah. prevailing belief yeah. and has been since, yes. and it, it, since this uh, peace so to speak, the armistice. Right, but if you well, like the, the, the war, the, by the way, the war never ended. Yeah, this is an armistice that ended in, in 1953. But the war is not over between right. the north and the south. No, they're ready to, ready to turn not it up. over. There, there is an armistice, but not a peace. Right. So these are two countries that are at war, and if we pay attention to this stuff, um, there's been incidents. There's been sinking. Uh, uh, there's been shelling of islands. There's mm-hmm. been shots. I mean, frequently shots across the border. Yeah. The uh, when I was there, the balloon bit of the story was I was at defectors who send balloons into North Korea and they study wind patterns and they know when to launch them and they have these little uh, basically acid charges. Yeah. On they crack them and then they sell. And after a couple hours, three hours or something. It burns through and drops a payload, and that payload is money and propaganda and DVDs and mostly USB sticks. And copies of the interview on USB. Ah, yes, that's right. And and what people don't understand is most people in North Korea have access to these little uh, flip-up DVD players that they get from China that are smuggled in through China, and they have USB ports on them. So they send um, uh, usually South Korean soap operas and films and stuff. One of the most fascinating things was one of the guys who does this – um, a North Korean defector was was sort of reasonably high ranking in the army. Told me that the first thing that the, he de- he did when he started putting these USB sticks together. This is totally fascinating. He took essentially like a GoPro camera, small camera, and he went in to a, a South Korean grocery store and just walked through it with the camera rolling. And they put that file on the on the stick, and it said, "Look at guys." You guys are starving. You, you don't have access to Dude, this. This is what we have. It's in, similar to what you in said Central Europe, about Central Europe. In Central Europe, I mean, that was uh, one of the big takeaways. In Bratislava, which borders Austria and Vienna, is only an hour away by train, they were able to see television in there. 
And what are the takeaways from television? It's not necessarily, you know, whatever kind of ideological strain they're talking about, NATO and blah, blah, blah. They don't give a shit. They just look and say, oh, my God, those people, they they, they got more than two uh, shades of hair color. You know, there's more than five shirts. You would walk around the streets of Prague in 1990 or the streets of Budapest in 95 even, and you would see the same patterns on people's shirts 13 times a day. Yeah. There's that rose pattern over there. There was just like a limited amount of stuff. Yeah. People responded to the, the television show Dallas everywhere, in Romania more than elsewhere, but everywhere. And this actually includes Western Europe too, <laughs> uh, as uh, Emmanuel and Joanna will tell you, but um, but in Eastern Europe especially. And it was this great thing where those shows were allowed in by the censors because it was seen, oh, this is – anti-capitalistic right you have this and oil see the man materialistic who's yeah. just Waste terrible yeah. in America. and that yeah. was just not the message that yeah. the romanians are getting marines are getting like oh my god the women don't do anything except fucking shop yeah that's awesome yeah and drive cars big ass american cars i mean yeah. it's a really a, a, a positive uh message that you don't get in this uh privation here a thing about a uh, propaganda and communism, that's important to realize, and people don't always uh, necessarily get this nuance, is that uh, communism lasts longest in places where there is a nationalist story about it, when there's a nationalist revolution associated mm-hmm. with it. So what are those two places that would give that more anywhere than else? Cuba, Cuba North Korea. and North Korea, mm-hmm. right? So it's tied up with a nationalist story. In Throughout Central Europe, a lot of this, a lot of communism was sort of imposed upon it. It was enforced by the Warsaw Pact. It didn't feel like it came from within, even though some aspects of it did come from within. But North Korea, even more so than Cuba, has that nationalist aspect. So it's precisely there where it will last the longest. So yes, that propaganda is coming. Um, There will be people there, like there is in every single totalitarian society, who will just think instinctively, whatever they're telling me must be, the opposite of that must be true. Um, And you'll see that but the nationalism aspect of it makes it stick uh, deeper and stronger than elsewhere. That and the fact that it really is the most totalitarian place on earth. Well, we've been I, yeah, yeah, we've been going for a little bit. There is one important matter that we have left unresolved here: the matter of the uh, the Holocaust centers uh, <laughs> and Sean Spicer uh, giving his presser, uh, explaining uh, to all of the uh, assembled uh, press uh, simply how bad uh, one. Um, one Assad is as compared to Hitler, because even Hitler apparently did not use gas. Um, Assad, um, Spicer, not Assad, although it could be the same person in some oh, sort of man. Um, but he is he's black. Grandpa. Someone asks uh, <laughs> someone asks him, what, what on earth did you mean by that? Uh, to which he responds. Um, we didn't use chemical weapons in World War Two. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler. Who didn't even sink to the to the to using chemical weapons? All sorts of gobbledygook, gibberish, and effectively kind of sort of retracts, but it's a total mess and a debacle. Um, and everyone hears this, gets enormously upset, and there are uh, a lot of sort of outrageous hand wringing. Oh my God, he doesn't know anything. He needs to go to the uh, to the Holocaust Museum and and learn something. Uh, about uh, about what took place there. Oh my God! It's a it's a Jewish holiday. This is terrible. It's awful. Uh, and Sean Spicer should be fired. Um, interesting note. According to Dan Beer, who could be lying and making this up, apparently in the Holocaust Museum, 
they actually call the the facilities, the gas chambers that were used. Um, what is it, Dan? Or were they death death camps? What? Death yeah, camps. They're death camps. Yeah. I mean, there's a distinction because concentration camps aren't death camps. Yeah. There were no death camps in Germany. They were all in Poland and, you know, what was but, formerly Upper Silesia. But, but isn't but, referring to it as a like a Holocaust center? This is in Sean's in yeah. defense. Is referring it's to it as a defense. Holocaust center. <laughs> I mean, that's you're desanitizing this whole thing, right? It's not a gas chamber. No, it's a Holocaust center. I mean, that's, it's just it's just a slip that's of very the tongue. direct. I mean, what what I mean, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to look right the, the defense. There. I mean, I actually defended. I was I think I was maybe the first person to point this out. Well, this is because you don't believe but, the Holocaust uh, happened. We should talk about that. Yeah, we're questioning the numbers. No, I'm yeah. the joke, people. It's a joke. It's a very the other big Moynihan. joke. That's the other Michael Moynihan. I'm uh, right. I'm, I know what happened. My He's got the C, um, and it's not a cyclone C. Oh, what? Wow. Let's cut that out and post. Because um, that'll get you in trouble. But uh, here's the th- here's what he's referring to, and this is an old canard. This is um, you know long debunked, but it's because apocryphal thing that the, the and it's something that we don't really understand. The Nazis uh, did develop themselves. I mean, they were the developers of sarin gas in 1937, and what ended up happening is they didn't use it on the battlefield. There, this was rather surprising to people after the fact, considering that they used uh, Zyklon B and, and, and gassed uh, Jews and others, mostly Jews, in uh, death camps in the East. So why didn't this happen? This apocryphal story came that Hitler, who um, was a victim of a gas attack during the First World War, uh, he developed such a loathing for this as a, as, as a weapon of war that he forbade his own troops from using it. So this is a very famous old apocryphal story amongst people who pay attention to this shit. It's been debunked a million times. But the underlying thing is true. They didn't use the stocks of of nerve agents and chemical weapons that they had on the battlefield. But Sean Spicer was obviously trying to say mm-hmm. uh, was that, you know, even Hitler didn't use this on the battlefield. Right. Um, but he's not a smart person and he's a, a, a bumbling fool. So not only does <laughs> and, he say this. And it's and, a hard job to talk. I mean, the you know, it's not that hard. I'm. It's really I mean, Dana Perino never said that, <laughs> uh, you know, but this Dana this, Perino is very nice, very nice person. But, who's but, the new uh, O'Reilly uh, factor? Uh, yeah, right. Perino. Yeah, she'll be sexually harassing as, you know, in T minus four. Oh, you mean you? No, Perino. personally. Yeah, she'll be. She, she yeah. will be sexually harassing. That's the job oh. in that slot. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> it's the Cosby Hour. At, uh, oh, my God. Uh, uh, what? Where are you going to put that jello? I like Charles Dana. So, I don't know. I was just having, I had something in my throat. But anyway. But so this is what he's saying. But of course, I, I mean, trying to say, but he's a dope. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Somebody probably gave it to him on a piece of paper. Um, and then it's time. This is the utter incompetence of this of this uh, administration. When he comes back, he can't even say you say that in the story's over. They'll still give you a hard time about it, but the story's over. And then he's like talking about, you know, the Holocaust Center off of Route 9 in <laughs> Waltham or something. And it's like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? The thing is that, that this old dictum is true, is that avoid, if you can, using Hitler references. And yes. Holocaust. It's not always the case because there are sometimes then these are very, very potent historical examples that are useful. I mean, you know, as... The, the German Jewish community said, ni vida, never again. And then it mm-hmm. became this, this kind of mantra in English, too. And that is a very good position to hold. And to be ni vida, never again, you have to understand the history and see if there are parallels. And there, by the way, is a certain parallel when you're gassing children 
That is not a totally bananas parallel to make, but it's a very sensitive he did, parallel. He didn't go about it very Get well. Get your damn facts right, and even the thing that you were messing up, you didn't have right. Can I, can I, can I quickly correct? Um, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum does, in fact, refer to the death camps as killing centers. Killing centers. Killing centers. Yeah, that's Killing common. centers. Yeah. Which, yeah. Holocaust centers, yeah. killing centers, not so far off for, for all of the establishment journalists. I can't believe we're ending this by defending Sean Spicer. critical just, of Mr. Spicer. I just reject You can give him premise. a break on that little part. I reject your premise that anyone was actually outraged by this. Uh, are you kidding me? Nope. Can I, not? I, I don't want to talk about Jake Tapper because it's going to sound like I'm obsessed with 99% of people. It was, it was, it was. Cause he, he went, he went hard. Okay. Jake's Jake, Jake went hard. Okay. We'll, we'll give Jake. Okay. But of the people that I saw reacting to this in real time, it was theatrical. It was, of course, Sean Spicer is going to do that. And it's ridiculous. And Chris Matthews did the same thing five years ago. It, it caused less of a stir at the time. Um, and he wasn't alone. I mean, lots of people have no, called for I mean, Spicer this to came be from, fi- fired. As this came from David Simon. You realize this. The founder of the, you know, the creator of The Wire, mm-hmm. which is this thing that 50% of the people listening to this podcast love this show. And I just – I absolutely love I that show. I just don't join any of you because I went into the show only on that one season that they did journalism thinking that, okay, he was a former Baltimore Sun guy. It's going to be great. It's going to resonate. And it was crap. It was garbage. It was foul. You don't. Dumb. You don't understand the streets. That's totally true. Yeah. Um, however, David Simon had this exact same argument over even Hitler didn't guess his own people and Harry Shearer, <laughs> who's a really great uh, internet troll. Uh, Is this Twitter the, troll. the the television version of uh, modern American <coughs> politics? Yeah, Harry Shearer. The voice of Mr. Burns against the guy who created The Wire, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, they had this long argument about this, and they, they like exhausted it all out about 10, 15 days ago. And then Sean Spicer picked it up out there. I, everyone was being theatrical about it. We all knew what Spicer was trying to do and that how he failed to do it. And it was just a reason to talk about things for 24 hours. No one actually would... would the, Jake Tapper ex- exception. He's, he's the exception, the is what you're saying. No, I mean for the for the most part, yeah. What was Tapper's response? Um, it it was uh, it was angry. It not it was it was angry. It was sort of outrage um, that these were. Um, I'm I'm forgetting the word, uh, but but the way he talked about it, he was describing Spicer as if he was a Holocaust denier. Yeah. Well, and he there was, was and he there went, was a statement. He, he insisted that he go visit the museum, which was just down the street, it's, so he could learn the history. I mean, which is just not, like, are you kidding me? That's too much. I really like Jake Tapper, by the way, and I think that's I, way too I much. Pick, I pick on him because he is sort of the the contemporary newsman's newsman. No, I know, and, and I, this and, is and, why and, I, and I can't I can't help but like him because yeah. I think he is a pretty pretty straight shooter, and I don't and really he's know. handsome. I don't really good yeah, jawline. That's not good. I don't know. Um, he's got a good jawline. He'd be fourth in this room. Yeah. Oh, well, this is well. Listen, sure. I mean, are you kidding? This, this is, is a, a unique room. This is a handsome setup here. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Dan Beer obviously is fifth. Oh, well, Dan Beer. Dan, Dan uh, Beer isn't in the room. Dan <laughs> Beer is on the Twitter or the instant messenger. Oh, um, God. I just I needed to get that tick on the the important thing. The important thing is game. that we use Hitler analogies all the fucking time, including not we. Not we well, Monahan does just yeah, for like sex, but like I the rest of us. I know a little bit about this subject, though. Yeah, you totally I do. do. I, I and do. And, and you've written and he's written about this uh, a lot for reason and for other people. People use Hitler analogies tomorrow, today, yesterday, every single day going forward, including a lot of people who were faking outrage about the Sean Spicer thing. People use Munich. 
and Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. Those are the go-to ways to talk yeah. about Hitler. Mm-hmm. In this, Usually, Jeffrey yeah. fucking shitlord at the American Spectator as recently as seven days ago <laughs> talked about how <laughs> I, did, you, I just realized that you just you just called him Jeffrey shitlord, which twice, I really enjoy. Yeah. twice in the show. Jeffrey uh, <laughs> <laughs> well. talked about how you know Donald Trump's decisive actions in Syria by lobbing tomahawk missiles shows that he has finally learned. The lesson of Winston Churchill that you have to act decisively in the face of terror, unlike Neville Chamberlain and Eunuch. People will use so, this. So did it go into an argument of why we didn't bomb the rail lines going into Auschwitz? Yeah, no. He like <laughs> the, it, so. it weirdly breaks down yeah. on this. We go to that analogy. The Iran nuclear deal was mm-hmm. described by new New York Times columnist Brett Stevens back in the day when he was still a Wall Street Journal columnist as obviously the worst thing since Munich. People mm-hmm. talk about this yes. constantly. We just mean very, very I, I just, bad. I wanna, Regardless yeah. of how little... Uh, you know, yeah. parallel and, and analogy. Absolutely. There are these. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to get another tick on the bingo board. Uh, Brett's a very nice guy. Um, so, <laughs> because he's near. Uh, no, he's just a nice guy. Um, <laughs> I say that about, you know, Reds too. But the thing is, is that this goes back to a discussion we've had here and was one of those discussions actually that we got a little, um, not a little, but I got a number of uh, tweets about uh, this sense that when somebody's talking about something you know about, you realize how little people know about everything. Mm. Um, in this, on this one especially, I have written a bunch of uh, columns about this, and and I think the last one was about the gun issue and the Holocaust, which people oh, are right. are, yes, are yeah. lead with their um, love of the Second Amendment, and they leave their brain behind them and say, guys, you can make this argument without invoking Nazism or, 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 or Khmer Rouge or whatever, and. You know, the history doesn't support it for, for a variety of reasons, um, but apparently, you know, 1% of the German population, just less less than 1% of the German population, who didn't even necessarily own guns, we didn't even know, that's never quantified, were going to go up against the, the, the power of the Wehrmacht and um, stop the Holocaust. We, sh- we should state the claim explicitly. The claim made by some proponents of the Second Amendment is that the yeah. very first thing that the Nazis did was, was they instituted take, gun control yeah, so not, that they could take the guns from the citizens, and then yeah. they went about their Yeah, business. I wrote a column about this for Tablet a long time ago. It's not really true. I mean, there's elements of truth to this stuff as always but the thing the thing with you know nazism the complications of this stuff is why there are so many books most of which i own uh on this subject i mean the 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 weight of the shelf groans under books with the swastika on on the binding and it's not because they had smart and snappy uniforms it's because we don't understand what happened particularly well because i mean look in the 80s there was an enormous and this is actually you know gets to the kind of root of this stuff People don't even get this. And this is, you know, I can, you know, dispense with this in a sentence, a long sentence, but a sentence. There was a, something called the historical, the, the battle of historian, historians, historical strike, as they call it in German. And it was the two, the two sides were the intentionalists and the functional, functionalists. This is a debate that hasn't been solved. And look it up because it's utterly fascinating. And the two sides are this. The intentionalists were, they intended to commit genocide against the Jewish people. The functionalists say this was a function of the forward motion of Nazism that, you know, there's a reason that the first death camps really started in 1942, uh, three years before the, the end of the Third Reich, and, you know, didn't happen in the 30s. There's a lot of debate about whether this was the intention of the Nazis or the function. That is a fascinating debate. So these things have never even been solved in any satisfactory 
way. So when people are making all these analogies on television, they know basically nothing beyond maybe a Schindler's List kind of idea that, you know, there was a girl in a red coat and everything else was in black, black and white. What they know happened was it's something very bad and there was a bad man with a with a, you know, you know, little uh, kind of toothbrush mustache. And that's it. I mean, you cannot make smart or sensible historical analogies without understanding the history. We would never allow this if we were doing contemporaneous history. We would never allow somebody to make a boneheaded, you know, analogy or say this is an analogous situation to the war in Iraq and then get the fucking history all wrong because all of us lived it and we battled these things in various ways. You say that on a panel and they're going to descend on you like locusts. They're going to say... That's not true. That's, you know, that didn't happen. And you'll have a debate about it. Somebody makes a, a, a dopey Hitler rem remark every time I turn on the damn, you know, cable news. And everyone just sits there nodding. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was a bad guy. Yeah, Hitler was really bad. We don't want to have another one of those. It's like, yeah, we don't. And there hasn't been something similar to it. And the last time there was something similar, um, there were a number of academics and people on newspapers at the time um, denying that it ever happened, and that was the genocide in Cambodia, mm. including someone like Noam Chomsky, who denied that it happened and said that the mm. testimony of those people fleeing over the border into Thailand was nonsense. And even, you know, the, the fantastic movie The Killing Fields, that portrays a New York Times columnist who at the very beginning denied that it happened and then became um, very aware of it and uh, wrote uh, fantastically about it. But, you know, that was the instinct to say, oh, this isn't happening. I think so that's that, the last time I can think where something was really, really, really similar. I think we can all agree that rule number two of, 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 of Hitler analogies mm. is that always go to the B team of dictators. Yeah. Go to Ceausescu. Very good. Pol Pot. Not as funny. Uh, not very Pol, well known. Is Pol Pot, is Pol Pot B team? No, he's A team. He's A team, but like there's he's faceman. There's only oh God. he's Murdoch. Yeah, <laughs> there's only one A team. It's Hitler, right? Below you got Mao, Stalin, well, this is in Pol people, Pot. In the in popular yeah. perception, okay, C team maybe. But yeah. but I don't know that C team is Ceausescu. I mean, I mean he's, he yeah. per capita he's pretty good. But yeah. like go to specific other people yeah. and then always preface it w with literally worse than. Yeah, if you're gonna yeah. do it, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So, it's, it's probably safer. Yeah, you're more likely yeah. to get it right. Robert, I think that's fair. Robert, the great historian Robert Conquest, who died about a year. I thought you were going to say Robert Mugabe. Yeah, Robert was going to say who's that's literally not, worse than the great, the great <laughs> no. uh, liberation struggle uh, hero of Rhodesia, Robert Mugabe, um, who also, by the way, has a Hitler mustache. That is true. Yeah, yeah. That Mugabe has a Hitler mustache. Is there some affection there? I would assume so. I think yeah. he's made, I think... Yeah. Between Moynihan and Mugabe? No, uh, yeah, Mugabe yeah, yeah. and Hitler. Yeah, so he's... We, he's we can grow a mustache. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, um, you know... <laughs> so that's great. But uh, Robert Conquest, who died uh, at about 100 years old, he was the greatest historian of the Soviet Union. He wrote two books at the end of his life that both people, that everyone out there should should read. Called One was called Reflections on a Ravaged Century, which is unbelievably good. And then a lesser known one, which is as good, called Dragons of Expectation, about the 20th century. He was the Sovietologist. And this is a maybe an apocryphal story told by Martin Amos, whose father, Kingsley Amos, two great novelists, were very good friends with him. When there was the first thing is this, when he was coming out with his book, The Great Terror, they were coming out with a, a new version in the 90s with all these archives opened up, and it's called Great, uh, the, uh, Great Terror, The Reassessment. And um, people like Stephen F. Cohen had attacked him. He was attacked uh, uh, by um, uh, The Nation magazine almost every week. It was, it was, it was nonstop. 
and they came to Conquest, who ended up ended his uh, you know living in in uh, Palo Alto. He t- it was at, at Hoover, uh, but he was like a grand old man of of, of uh, British historians, and he was a, a posh Brit. And they said to him, "Okay, uh, Mr. Conquest, we need a new subtitle for the Great Terror." It ended up being the Great Terror reassessment, a, a reassessment. And they asked him, and he paused, <laughs> and he said. Uh, how about I told you so, you fucking morons? <laughs> uh, but but when 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 con- when Congress had a great is a great moment. You could find this. It's really really fantastic, and I agree with it because I am a great hater of commies. You say, God, you know, Mao, sixty million, seventy million, hundred million. You know, tally it up. Stalin, the same thing. You know, why don't you believe that these communist monsters, Mister Conquest, is uh, you know are worse than Hitler and the Holocaust? And he said, no, surprised everyone. He's a great hater of the Soviet Union. And, they, and, and, and it was asked why. And he said, because I just feel it. And I think that's right. Hmm. I just feel it. It just feels that way. And it's, I, I think that's effect, it's essentially right, the mechanization of it, the kind of industrial killing of it, somehow feels different. The combination of the expansionist, uh, uh, sort of murderous expansionism of countries, swallowing countries, and then also... Uh, the gassing, the Holocaust of minorities within that twofer, few uh, despots ever matched. Yeah. Right. A lot of people go after their own people. North Korea, uh, for example. I do hate that phrase so much. What? Go after their own people. I'm sorry. I just. Yeah. It's, no, I know you. I know you're not doing out, it for. We for always say that about the Kurds. And the interesting yeah. thing about the Kurds is they never never thought of themselves as Saddam's own people. <laughs> they were Kurds. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. They yeah. they aren't able to export their yes. awfulness. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and when not and, perpetrated and, on those other assholes. And it's one of the reasons why the Munich uh, analogy, which has been used in literally, mm-hmm. not literally worse than Hitler, but li- literally every single U.S intervention since world war ii has been sold at some point as uh, a sort of intellectual response to trying to learn the lessons from the 1938 munich agreement um there's no exceptions i mean uh, madeline albright said my mindset is munich john f kennedy wrote his college th- uh, thesis paper on the lessons of munich it is just suffused with absolutely everything from vietnam on on um, so that's been part of us forever. And the problem with that is that we use that in, in situations where you're not negotiating with an expansionist dictator who's swallowing countries because that situation is actually pretty rare. Yeah, I feel I feel like I feel like there was uh, there was a nod in a particular direction when you uh, when you made that last. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't going black Ron Paul. I was not. Yeah. I swear to God. No, I'm just being expansionist dictators who are swallowing countries. It sort of sounds contemporary. You were gonna hey Camille, what would black what there? would black Ron Paul sound like? I have no idea. I don't even know what, do you, what, what you guys are talking about. What, what, what this is the strangest. Like I don't know what that this means. Is Camille doing this? Is this, what it is? <laughs> is this is this black Ron Paul? Yeah, I don't know. You gonna have um, you gonna have a survival report? <laughs> <laughs> we um, speaking of which, um, the the Netflix. Uh, have you seen? Um, gosh, what is his name? Who? Um, he was he used to do did Red Eye and a bunch of other stuff. Um, he has a 2017 is the new Netflix special he just did. 
She's super uh, funny. Who? Jimmy Fallon? No, oh, damn it. Jimmy's not funny. He's no, huge. Oh, uh, Louis, oh, Louis C.K. Louis yeah, C.K. Yeah, Jimmy's funny. Louis C.K. Yeah, um, I thought it was very funny. His uh, new Netflix special. Did you, uh, you watch the Chappelle aside. one? The, the Chappelle's ones are very funny as well. <laughs> we, we should we should eject. Um, we, we've been eject. going for a very long time. Hey, can we do we've the got... idiot row of this that the guy sent us? Quick. Yes, we should. Um, before we do it, though, well, um, we good. have a another thank you. Um, the new Fifth Column logo is uh, permeating the ether and, and showing up in various places. Um, that was provided to us by a gentleman by the name of Mike Jackson, who was oh, kind enough showed me to just yeah. make this thing uh, yeah. to improve our presentation and to make us look more professional. It's a ni- um, so nice typeface. Uh, Mike, tw- uh, tweet at me. Tell me what the typeface is. Yeah. So if you were uh, if you were reeled in nerd. by that new logo, uh, you have Mike Jackson to blame for that. And if you've listened this far, then you are officially uh, a, like a, a part of the regiment. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, well, thank yeah. you for thank you for listening. Yes. With that note, let us pivot to uh, some idiot uh, wrote this or, in fact, said something, um, if, uh-huh. if you will. What uh-huh. What is the thing? That, that oh, I thought you, I thought we were going to talk about the thing that uh, the the South African uh, oh, lady, the South wrote, African thing, who said who wrote a piece. I can't even bring it up. I'll just give you a line of it, and, oh and um, maybe Camille tweeted out or something. I couldn't be bothered uh, of a woman who. This is the kind of end place of mm. of this kind of new bananas ethnic politics. It was a white woman too from South Africa who said um, to achieve real equality. We must disenfranchise white people and say they can't vote for 20 years. You're, you're laughing. It was like, no, it's so fucking crazy. It's like, wow. It's, but it's like pu- published by the Huffington Post, which doesn't surprise me. Well, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, they, is, I guess they publish anything. They but, synthesize a great. A great but it was literally things. like it's it's a call to disenfranchise a racial group from the Huffington Post, South Africa, which is, you know, the kind of, it's kind of the A team. And I mean that in, in the, in the baseball sense of the single A team, Um, you know, this is the, the Omaha golden spikes, uh, is, well, what's what's uh, what's AAA team. what's what's disturbing about the about this piece, and and it's interesting that it comes on the heels of this conversation about you know uh, worse than Hitler and trying to understand the evil. Um, that there is a video that accompanies this article, and the video features oh, South Africans, like just just regular South Africans, sort of talking about their circumstance and and des- describe defining this uh, radical. Uh, radical economics uh, is what I believe it was described as, which is effectively just um, massive um, tribally uh, tribally executed um, reapportionment of resources, confiscating the wealth of white people to give it to the various black people in this country because of all of the historic injustice that's taking place. This is... But they've never been tried in South Africa yeah, before. Never, never, ever. Well, never been tried in Africa before, right? Except next door. Yeah. Which is... No, in which their is, own country. They, we ended apartheid was the uh-huh. exact same thing. But I mean, but Zimbabwe has experienced something something very similar oh, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. With um, farm which, seizures. Which, interestingly, the Zim, in Zimbabwe, when this is carried out by one uh, Robert Mugabe... It has it helped to decimate the Zimbabwean economy and that South Africans are still to this day dealing with massive uh, immigration across their border. Um, and there has been this intense xenophobia, this hatred towards the Zimbabweans who are coming in and decimating their economy uh, from from the perspective of, of some people there uh, by taking their jobs and working for too little. Um, but um, there's something what, what's really disturbing about the video is that people believe 
this. There are people who believe that it's a great idea to take the wealth of the white people, to, to give it back to the blacks, to, to balance out this uh, inequality of resources as they are allocated. Um, I don't know. For me, like, there's something even scarier about uh, an almost coherent an almost seemingly morally upstanding perspective being articulated that is in effect like just a gross totalitarian power grab that is sort of masquerading as uh, social justice. Um, it's dictatorship. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the very foundation of dictatorship is disenfranchising entire groups of people, but you know, nobody, of course, this woman doesn't address in her utterly idiotic a piece, what kind of reactionary politics something like this would create um, to say that we're going to take people's votes away. People don't take that stuff lying mm-hmm. down, I mean, which is why the ANC, you know, was a, a group that was dedicated in its early days to armed struggle. And I think I'm I think rightfully so. I think that I didn't have a problem with that, mm-hmm. you know, and and this is we what, probably had a problem with certain aspects of well, there's uh, certain there were definitely certain, <laughs> you know, and and, you know, there are a lot of things and a lot of problems um, um, that I have with ANC and people like Joe Slovo and those, the kind of CP influence and the madness of it. But I mean, you know, in a sort of intellectual sense, yeah, no, I understand that. I do. But, but this is what happens when people, this is how people react to totalitarian regimes. And this is why, for instance, that North Korea is the way it is, is that one has to turn the screws in such a tight way to keep these things in order. And you, they, they were lucky to, you know, have established the state in 1953 and prevent the internet and prevent television and prevent things like this. But, you know, these are, when dictatorships start with these you know, supposedly morally upstanding ideas for the health of the people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't see what could possibly boomerang. Yeah, but these there. aren't, these aren't, uh, the, the people featured in the video are not leaders. They're not political leaders. It's regular folks, regular folks who, who buy and believe it. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that ideology, that's, there's something scary about it. The easiest thing to do, uh, for a politician to do, and we saw this in the last election, um, is to convince people who don't have much that it's because of some zum, some zero sum politics that somebody else is taking something from you, and that's a very very easy instinct to exploit. Yeah. You're saying it, it, because of these people you don't have X, and history is littered with bodies as a result of that kind yeah, of yeah. idiotic. Uh, well, his segue yeah. segue because do you know the. Um sculpture down on wall street of the big muscular bull yeah yes, which is uh, facing down a, a little girl is about now, to trample now yes it's the yeah. new one who is in front Fear, fearless girl fearless is the name girl that's like a five-year-old six-year-old seven-year-old this is very close to where camille lives mm-hmm. uh here so my some idiot wrote this is bill oh fucking oh, de blasio wow wow jeez Sorry. we redlined that one we um we're, we'll have to soften that a bit <laughs> no <laughs> no 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 i'm that's no. deafening how can you make andrew cuomo look like a statesman by being bill de blasio here's his tweet i think it came to no april 13th that's today yeah 5 50 p.m it's yeah contemporaneous unlike the charging bull says at nyc mayor hmm which has become a symbol of Wall Street, mm-hmm. which he doesn't even have to like elucidate. Is yes. obviously no, it's obviously. And he evil. wants to say the the charging bull of capitalism, which is what he, mm-hmm. he would have said in the eighties. And yeah. charging bull, yeah, capitalized obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fearless girl, FG, mm. is becoming a beacon for the fight against injustice. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't didn't those horrible monsters on Wall Street like erect that fearless girl statue because they uh, believed that it would help to promote issues of uh, inequality in the workplace, i.e., women I not have, getting getting I hired. Have no idea, but that's uh, not. I, I will say also that on the on Michael Barbaro, the um, the uh, New York Times uh, political reporter, tweeted about this today too and said something to the effect: "I don't have it in front of me." Of like uh, the artist who created the bull said he didn't want the the girl statue there. And he said, how can one artist, uh, you know, uh, speak against a, another work of art that is creating a brilliant space of blah, blah, blah? It's like, no, it's, that's not what it's doing. It's making an absurd um, political point. I suppose that little children are being run over by the bull of Wall Street. I have many <laughs> problems with the practices of Wall Street. But to say that that's simplistic uh, does in, incredible violence to the word simplistic. I mean, it's it's beyond simplistic. It's idiotic. So yeah, I don't know. Keep it there. Fine. I don't give a shit. But it's it's the a one stupid stupid argument. The one thing that uh, listeners should know that the three of us do that they might not is that if you live in the uh, city of uh, New York, you get paid or you have to pay uh, New York income taxes. New York oh City mm-hmm. income tax. In addition to the state, yes. It's sometimes I it's it's it, almost more than the state. It is it's a, punishing. It's bad. It's, it's punishing. an incredible amount of money. We yeah. at the Mercatus Center, you know, list this uh, New York as having the and specifically New York City as having the highest tax burden in the country, and I um, obviously the highest rents too. I was uh, this week, which is too damn high. Which is too damn high. Wear some black gloves and talk about it. But final point here for me is that is that I this this week was uh, in a Rust Belt state. Uh, for a project that's coming out soon. And I was with a lot of guys who had lost jobs and they were really interesting. They all voted for Trump, their second choice. Uh, they all, a lot of them voted for Trump because Bernie Sanders was beat by Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an ethnically diverse, mixed, really interesting group of people. And when I was talking to them, you know, they were making really good wages, union wages in a lot of places. And one of the interesting things about it was we, uh, when we weren't rolling on something, we were, I was talking to one guy, who's a great, great guy um, who just lost his job. Um, and he told me, he said, hey, man, you know, what, what is it? What do you what do you get there for rent there in New York City? And I told him my rent and he, you know, gasped. And we determined after a little conversation that at the end of the month, um, he has more in his bank account than I do. Mm. I mean, and it, and it was clear. I mean, it wasn't even close. It has yeah. nothing to do with the cocaine either. No, not, I mean, a little bit. <laughs> well, a little bit. bit, yeah. I mean, I don't, I pay for half of it. I split <laughs> it with a guy. But it was like, you know, everything there is pretty cheap. The real estate's super cheap. I was yeah. in one person's house. They, 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 they bought it for $30,000. The food is cheap. Um, gas is cheap. Cigarettes are cheap. Everything is cheap. Yeah. Uh, the, the bar that I was at was um, Dollar uh, Domestic uh, Long Necks. It was great. Oh. Uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you get more money than I do bank in new york city is a punishing punishing place to live but you know we sort of have to live here yeah so what i'm gonna do is buy a house that's a great nice job we'll talk about it next time um well i hope we have terrified and thrilled and excited you uh longest one yet this is yeah this this may be the longest i blame dan beer uh dan beer is certainly to blame uh thank you to dan beer uh for helping to uh to get the the wheels onto this one uh, a little straighter uh, thanks also to uh, Michael Weiss for joining us uh, and and chatting uh, about foreign policy. And thanks, of course, to uh, both Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan for uh, for being here and Thank for being on me. time and for being remarkable. And thanks to you, dear listener. For being on time. What's I was here that? before you. What's that? That's true. We both were. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I did that for you as a gift. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. 
Trojan Horse, the fifth column.